Tune in to the Neil Prendeville Show weekdays from 9 a.m. on Cork's Red FM. And a very good morning. This is Mick Mulcahy, 10 past 9. I'm on the Neil Prendeville Show this week and next as Neil takes a well-deserved break. Green light for travel, says the Echo Today. You may have heard us speaking to uh, Simon Coveney, Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence, yesterday on the publication of the Green List. A couple of lemons on there, uh, you have to think. Uh, but expert insists it's now not the time to jet off. The Echo reporting, a UCC-based expert in viruses, has said anybody contemplating a foreign holiday doesn't understand the COVID-19 pandemic after the government issued a green list of safe countries to travel to. Professor Jerry Killeen cautiously welcomed the government's publication of the list, but says he believes now is not the time for non-essential travel. He says, I think people should bear in mind there are not just risks associated with the travelling, but also with the holiday frame of mind. Anybody who thinks it's time for an overseas holiday hasn't understood what pandemic means. Green list farce is the front page of the mail today. The green list chaos was laid bare yesterday. As it emerged, holidaymakers will have to go through high-risk COVID countries to get to at least two destinations. As the Taoiseach rejected opposition claims that travel plans have been handed in a pack-handed way, it was revealed that one destination on the list, Monaco, doesn't even have an airport. It's built on the side of a mountain. It has uh, a Formula One track. Uh, probably the only place in the world that has a Formula One track and not an airport uh, even though it is public roads that are modified for the race, of course, but it has one of the most beautiful harbours in the world. But travellers will have to journey through at-risk France to get there or to get from there to here. Meanwhile, flights to Gibraltar will necessitate a layover in the UK, which is not on the green list, uh, or else a flight to Malaga in Spain, which is also not on the safe list. And reaching San Marino, a tiny landlocked country surrounded by Italy, uh, involves long and arduous travel through that COVID high area. The green light to up your airfares is the take of the mail as well on the inside pages. And on page six, the carriers hike prices to holiday hotspots, but the industry demands more. Budget airline Ryanair has told customers they now have the green light to fly as they hike prices to holiday hotspots on the government's new green list. Greenland, a holiday hotspot. While the government advice remains to avoid non-essential travel, Ryanair is encouraging people to snap up deals to destinations to which it's been deemed safe to travel. And what a difference a day makes. Uh, to Malta, by far the biggest price hike for people booking flights out of Dublin next month was Malta. On Tuesday, one return flight to the Mediterranean island from August 1st to 8th would have cost 177 However, the same booking had increased to 320 the following day, a difference of €143. Euros. That would seem to be price gouging to me. And for a family of five, two adults, three children and one teenager, sorry, two adults, two children, one teenager, this flight would have cost 885 or 177 per person. Uh, today, it's uh, 2130 or 426 per person. They don't look that big until you multiply them by four or five or six. Greece, the same, at 177 up to uh, 224. Cyprus, uh, return to the city of Paphos would have cost 160 on Tuesday, now uh, 232. It's like the hotels, really, when, uh, you know, One Direction are coming to town or Ed Sheeran or something. Uh, shut pubs who flout regulations, says Dr. Chris Luke. This is in this evening's, or this morning's Echo. I suppose Sarah Horgan uh, reporting that a leading emergency doctor in Cork has said that a second wave of coronavirus is imminent and called for pubs caught flouting the COVID-19 rules to be shut down. Dr. Chris Luke, who returned to the front lines of the Mercy Hospital at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, was speaking ahead of the pubs reopening, hopefully, next month. He shook Michal Martin announced last week that Ireland would not enter phase four of the roadmap to reopening businesses and society and that pubs due to reopen would remain shut until August 10th at least. But Dr. Luke is calling to shut down any pubs who flout 
regulations. And they are making the news. The Ring of Cork has launched its guide. This is also in the Echo. Uh, a guide to all that the Cork region has to offer has been launched just in time for those looking to book a staycation in the area. The Ring of Cork Staycation 2020 guide showcases all the best things to do, places to stay, places to eat, including some of the country's top visitor attractions, outdoor activities, stunning coastlines, historic towns and quaint villages. Formerly known as East Cork Tourism Limited, the Ring of Cork's website states that the small corner of Ireland's ancient east, east, we're not east, uh, we're kind of southwest, uh, and the greater Cork area is made up of tourism activities, attractions, restaurants, bars and accommodations, accommodation providers. And there is so much to do, of course, when you look at, even on the coastline, Ballycotton Cliff Walk, Ballinamona Strand, Ballywilling Beach, Claycastle Beach, Fountainstown Beach, Garyvo Beach, Knockadoon, Cliff Walk. Uh, there are public parks and grounds such as Photo House, Arboretum and Gardens, Photo Wildlife Park. What about Leahy's Open Farm? Marlow Woods, beautiful spot to take a free walk. So there's plenty of places to staycation. And of course, we were talking uh, to the marketing manager of Blarney Castle, now open again. And you can kiss the gift of the Gab Stone, the Blarney Stone, quite safely now. It's a very uh, much slower process, they're telling us. Uh, they have to COVID clean it each and every time. But Blarney Castle also open for business. And the COVID schemes are set to stay until next April. A multi-billion euro July stimulus plan focuses almost solely on jobs. This is the front page of the examiner. The temporary wage subsidy scheme and the pandemic unemployment payment, PUP, will be extended until April. The emergency measures brought in at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic are both due to be extended until spring next year. Five months longer than previous indications. The measures are to be revealed today in the government's July stimulus package in a multi-billion euro plan to salvage Ireland's economy. Whatever we're getting, we're paying back more uh, and a lot more uh, but I guess we have to address that down the line. But it's going to be put on the shoulders of each and every Irish citizen, let me tell you that. Uh, in the examiner as well, half of close contacts do not take a second test. Uh, half of close contacts of COVID-19 confirmed cases are failing to turn up for their second test, which is conducted seven days after the first. Why do the first if you're not going to do the second? And many, as many as a quarter of those who've made appointments for voluntary COVID-19 testing are not presenting for the second one. Uh, random testing for passengers arriving into Ireland. Also in the examiner today, Neil Michael reporting that the government is planning to introduce random COVID-19 testing of passengers who arrive into Ireland from countries with a high incidence of the virus. Random. It's one of a raft of measures uh, it plans to bring in by August 10th. We had two cases yesterday uh, verbally telling us on the air that uh, relations of theirs walked through from high COVID incidence areas uh, with nary a check at, uh, I think, one in Cork, one in Dublin Airport. The government is still in the process of setting up a new system for monitoring people who come into the country. And after their cabinet meeting on Monday evening, ministers said plans to strengthen existing measures for monitoring passengers who arrive into Ireland include the introduction of an electronic passenger locator form, which Minister Coveney did mention yesterday. Selfless, humble and brave. Uh, tragic COVID-19 victim Dr. Saeed Wakar Ali has been hailed a hero by his devastated family. He went on the front line, gave his all, and died following complications from catching the uh, the virus itself. Three months in intensive care after contracting the virus while working in Dublin's Matter Hospital. And grieving doctor, daughter Dr. Samar Ali said, he was selfless, he was one of a kind, he was humble, and he's pictured on the front page of The Sun. Uh, schools and creches with cases of COVID-19 to stay open is the worrying headline in The Independent. Schools and creches will not automatically uh, will not automatically op- 
close if they have a suspected case of COVID-19. Childcare providers will remain open unless they're told to shut after public health orders carry out an evaluation, it's been said. And one more. A dog stolen in Cork found in Kilkenny. And the raft of theft of dogs and dog stealing we will address on the programme a little later on. Gardaí in Mullinavat in County Kilkenny have recovered a dog that was stolen in Cork last March. The dog, named Pop, was reunited with her owners after months of separation. Cardi said they were delighted to reunite Pop with her owners, who were thrilled to have her home. They added, a suspect has been identified and investigations are ongoing. The incident follows a slew of recent uh, dog thefts from all over the country. Unfortunately, dog theft is a growing problem that applies to all owners. And it's uh, in every element and every geographic area of society. The stories are rife about dogs being stolen. We will talk about that a little later on on the Neil Prendeville Show. The Neil Prendeville Show. With Tesco. Save time and shop online. Simply log on to tesco.ie. Good morning now. Two women who operated an occupational and speech and language therapy service in Cork have been fined after they pleaded guilty to six charges relating to using professional titles to which they were not entitled. And to bring us up to speed is uh, Paul Byrne from Virgin Media News. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Nick. Great detail uh, you, you gave last night on this. And uh, can you bring us up to speed as to what exactly happened? Maybe a little historic element of the story first. Yeah, basically, uh, these are women, Lisa O'Driscoll and Emma Power, both uh, with addresses in Cork. They set up a business in 2016. They traded as Bright Spots. It uh, was a speech and language and occupational therapy service, which they operated from a unit in the South Link Business Park. That's where Smith's Toys are based there in the, the Kinsale Road. Now, it wasn't until 2016 or 2018 that uh, Carew, this is the regulator or the professional council that uh, examines and looks after people who uh, practice, that um, complaints were received uh, from registered therapists as well as parents who were somewhat concerned. And it transpired that neither Lisa or Emma, Lisa O'Driscoll or Emma Parr, were actually registered with Carew. Now, um, there was correspondence between all parties over the period of uh, 12 months asking the ladies to register and to stop using what were described as um, protected titles until they had uh, registered with the body. But things seemed to go from bad to worse somewhat and they just didn't register. But despite one attempt from Lisa O'Driscoll uh, at one stage. She then withdrew the application. But it ended up then before the High Court in Dublin last January. And the women at that stage did give an undertaking to stop using the titles. But it then ended with the criminal proceedings, which were initiated uh, by Crew, the state regulator, in the district court yesterday. The basis of Carew, of course, Paul, is that if you study for four or five years arduously in college, like UCC or whatever, you'll eventually graduate, you'll get your degree, and then you apply, and there's a cost also in applying, I think it's 100 euros or something. You apply to Carew, you apply yeah, to Carew for your official registration as a practitioner under the, the realm of your degree, if you like. And these, these women didn't have those, those degrees. 
they didn't qualify here in Ireland and they didn't uh, may, they didn't register here in Ireland. Now, they said that in the court yesterday, their solicitor, Carrie McDermott, who fought uh, arduously on behalf of both women, said that they had qualified in uh, two separate universities in the UK, but over the last period of time, they have, were having difficulties in obtaining documentation. Uh, so there was no actual documentation in court yesterday to, to prove that they had qualified, but they were adamant that they had qualified at two separate uh, universities in the UK. Okay, but they hadn't qualified here in Ireland. Even if they got that uh, required documentation in the UK, they may have been able to transfer by application and be recognised by Carew, but that didn't happen. It didn't happen and all they were, as Carew said, they fought long and hard to meet them halfway. They did everything they could to assist Lisa Oderskilla and Emma Power and uh, help them, basically, I suppose, for the want of a better word, they, they, Carew almost signed the dotted line for them, uh, but they, they just didn't uh, play ball. And they had said there were so many breaches that they were left with no other option but to bring the criminal proceedings yesterday. Incidentally, it's the first prosecution of its kind here in Ireland where uh, these two ladies were fined. Lisa O'Driscoll used the title a speech and language therapist. Emma Power used the title as occupational therapist. It also transpired in court yesterday that the HSE actually um, regarded the two women as highly valuable members to the uh, services to the community and the HSE used services of both these women despite the fact that neither were registered with Karoo. Well they had certain skills and you know to an extent their hearts were probably in the right place and they probably did some good for some of their clients but I think the, the, yeah. the key element of what the judge said yesterday Paul was uh, about the prosecution is that it achieved a desirable social end in ensuring that services in this area would be provided only by properly qualified professionals subject to appropriate discipline and regulation so and this is the end game so that families can rely on these services particularly for vulnerable children yeah, I mean, that's the crux of the matter, really. I mean, they, they work with uh, children with um, development needs. The judge said that the two were very somewhat naive to carry on working away without being registered. Again, their solicitor, Carrie McDermott, said that the, the two had fought, uh, come to the court. They put their hands up. Uh, she said the two had been vilified uh, in social media. Horrible things had been said about her clients. They've lost their business. They're now on the dole and their lives have been devastated and they won't work again in this area. Um, both Basically, there was a possibility that they could have been jailed yesterday. The judge, however, fined them. one. They had uh, six counts each of failing to register that protected title. The judge fined them €100 euro each, plus €250 euro in costs. He said the fines would have been a lot more had they not been before the High Court last year where they were paying the costs of the proceedings taken by Kuro. That's costing them about fifteen grand, and they're paying nearly a €1,000 a month each in uh, paying mm. costs there. But today, you know, there's still a lot of questions being asked. Um, how many children went through the service? Will those children need to be reassessed? Um, I don't think this is the end of it, Mick. Okay. Uh, and I suppose, is there a certain sense from the judge, do you think, that, look, they've suffered enough, vilified on social media, lost their business, uh, to a certain extent lost their good name. Now they're, uh, they've, you know, they've lost their job, they're on the dole, they're paying high court costs. Um, uh, you know, it's, is, is it more of a slap on the wrist in, in, in the fact that maybe your hearts were in the right place, but you didn't do it properly? Yes, possibly. Um, I mean, I, I, mean I, I presume a lot of parents whose 
children availed of the services today are questioning what in the name of God went on and may have no sympathy or little or no sympathy for the two women. Uh, the judge sat there on on the bench. Uh, he's got to be impartial. And, you know, he just, uh, he did say, as I said, that they were naive to carry, carry on with being registered. And, um, you know, he fined them at, at the end of the day. Uh, he also took... Um, I won't say issue, but he questioned um, the, the large media interest in this case yesterday. He somewhat was perplexed or surprised that there were so many reporters in case in the court yesterday. But I suppose this is a case where it's in the public interest and we have got to report on, on the matter. Mm. And, and, and here we are talking uh, on live radio about it now. And it, it, look, it is, I suppose, it, it is a tragic case in, in its own sense. But I wonder, are any of the parents now... Uh, of the children who availed of these services now considering recourse legally themselves? Um, I don't know, and I'm sure within the next five to ten minutes you'll have parents on on, on on air talking about their children who have been through this service and wondering where to next or, or what happened. Again, it, 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 it seemed to come out in court that the women were qualified, but not qualified to, to not registered in Ireland. Again, they couldn't prove the qualifications. Maybe... They, Maybe again they were naive. They said they there was problems obtaining the documentation from the universities, and I mean it, it's a shame, I suppose, in one sense that those documentation that those documents weren't um, shown in court yesterday, which would show that these ladies were qualified in their respective roles. But I'm sure the parents will be on the air with you in the next five or ten minutes, and uh, you'll be able to ask them what how they feel and where they go to uh, next. Okay, the ladies, of course, claimed that they they couldn't have the the requisite qualifications transferred across from the UK because the relevant documentation from the universities of Newcastle and Northumbria could not be accessed. That's right. Yeah, that's okay. right. Uh, Carrie McDermott, their solicitor. And um, I mean, she fought well on their behalf yesterday. You know, I mean, as I said, there was a possibility they were going to go to jail yesterday, but they did come in, they put their hands up, they pleaded guilty at the outset of the case yesterday morning, first thing. Okay, Paul, you're welcome to stay, but I know, I think you have another appointment at 9.30, do you? Yep, okay. got to do a story. We'll, Thanks, Mike. We'll let you go. Best of luck on Virgin Media yeah. News. And uh, that was Paul Byrne. Uh, we'll, we'll take a break and uh, we're going to speak to one of the legal team uh, representing the ladies in a few moments. Text the Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Now back to the story we were just talking about to Paul Byrne from Virgin Media News. Two young women described by a sentencing judge as naive for continuing to offer speech and language therapy and occupational therapy when they were not registered in Ireland with their UK qualifications. Their solicitor is Carrie McDermott of MDM Solicitors, uh, the solicitor for Emma Power and Lisa O'Driscoll. Good morning to you, Carrie. Welcome to the programme. Morning, Mick. Now, if, if uh, as has been suggested... The social media and media in general coverage of this has been pretty heavy, has been sensationalist and has cost your clients, uh, you know, their good name or reputation or has, has caused them any grief. We're happy to give you a platform which would, uh, with which to perhaps redress that balance. Um, so I suppose the coverage of this case has always been that there's a suggestion that these women have carried on in an, in an inappropriate manner towards vulnerable children. That is the way the case has been uh, set from the outset. It's the first time prosecution um, injunction uh, taken by this agency. And I suppose the, both my clients have asked me to come on and, and set the record straight, which mm -hmm. was very much what we were doing in court yesterday. This case is about registration, about nothing else. It's not about negligence. It's not about bad reports. It's not about misappropriate uh, behaviour towards children. It's about registration. 
Uh, both Emma and Lisa qualified in the UK. They did their practical training there. Both worked in Ireland privately. Um, both had the record experience to set up this business in 2016. When it was set up, there was no requirement at all to register. So it was fully set up in 2016 without any requirement to have their UK qualifications registered here. That came later. So, so did Carew exist at that time? It existed at the time, um, and it was at the time focused on uh, healthcare workers that were working for the public service. Like social workers? Yes, the requirement to register as a private uh, uh, speech and language and occupational therapist came after the setup of Brightspot. Okay. So it's important that people understand that this was a business that was set up, and after the setup, regulation changed, which required forms to be completed and submitted to Coru to have the qualifications registered in Ireland. So a retrospective requirement was registered, Carrie, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. What was registered by the state, uh, which which covered these two girls' practices uh, in the Irish state and which required them now to, I, I suppose, clarify and ratify and and align their UK qualifications with that here in Ireland? Yes, that's Okay. Correct. There's not... This isn't a case that suggests that they had set up a business and they were providing services that they weren't qualified to provide. There's no question of that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a very important point. The second point is that it, because of the requirements and the documents that are required to affect the registration, both had to get documentation from their universities in the UK. And for whatever reason, that took a significant amount of time and people were focused on work and, um, you know, they were naive and not completing that process. But that is the height of what they are guilty of. Mm. They're, they're not two chancers who slapped a false no. certificate up on the wall and, and then started to interact with vulnerable children. I, because that's that's what you could take from some of the media coverage, some of the ill-informed media coverage. But even, even reading through the lines and talking to Paul Byrne, I, I was able to ascertain that these girls seem to have had their hearts in the right places. Hmm. These aren't two girls who are calling themselves something that they're not. They are both speech and language and occupational therapy qualified uh, professionals. And no matter what happened before the High Court or in court yesterday, they remain qualified in both those professions. Mm-hmm. And that's a very important point. Also, they have met both cases with dignity. I said to the judge yesterday, this is the state using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. It is my opinion that this agency has used this case as an example, these are two bright young women who were providing very good services to our society, our local community in Cork. They had referrals from the HSE. They were well regarded. And they have many, many patients at families they have helped who will come on and speak, I'm sure, to you today, if you wish, mm-hmm. who, will, who will demonstrate that this is actually a massive loss to society. So their intervention in certain children's or maybe all of the children's lives that they interacted with have resulted in better outcomes? Well, I believe absolutely. Mm-hmm. And 
I think as well, and I, I want to make this point, and, and I want to remain somewhat brief, um, make you know, there were references made to them calling themselves occupational therapists on private Facebook accounts and, um, you know, referring to themselves uh, on Twitter. Um, like, if I set up a business tomorrow, and I made this point in court at length yesterday, I'm going to use whatever free available social media platform I possibly can to advertise my business. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do that you know, uh, when I open my business, I'm not necessarily going to review that every, uh, you know, few months. I mean, Coru relied on desktop searches that their investigators undertook, which referred to Twitter accounts uh, that they they have these ladies calling themselves an occupational therapist and a speech and language therapist in 2019. But no content was ever put on that account from March of 2018, when both ladies said they wouldn't use the titles. But the fact that it wasn't deactivated was enough for this witch hunt to be undertaken. And that's not real. That's not realistic, in my view. And the danger of social media and using a title like that is that no matter what length you go to to deactivate it, through sheer inadvertence or forgetfulness or... um, or lack of ability to navigate those social media channels and there's no regulation around this by the state uh, around social media Uh, when we even deactivated one Facebook account it reactivated itself at one point which was a point we had made to the agency The, the, the point is this is a minefield for somebody in this position well, if, if somebody puts up a bit of advertising on social media, which can be good free advertising, and they are legally legitimate and abiding by all the laws of the state as they pertain at that time, which it seems the, the girls were, then the regulations change and they have to retrospectively apply for, for proper creditation, if you like. Um, and that social media thing is still there. Um, sure, surely that can't be admissible evidence in court. Well, it, it can, it was, well, I suppose the fact is it was used as admissible evidence in court before the High Court and echoing the words of President Peter Kelly in the High Court, he said both these women were qualified. They were not fly-by-night type uh, therapists. They were both qualified and trained and it is unfortunate that they are in this position. This is a state agency, in my opinion, and I'm saying my opinion very carefully, using a sledgehammer to crack a nut and it has meant devastation to the lives of two lovely young women and their families, but also a massive loss to the local community for vulnerable children and adults who I'm sure we need services like this and more of them uh, in Cork and locally. And I think that's a crying shame. Okay, past difficulties notwithstanding, uh, what are the girls' chances now of retrieving the required documentation from Newcastle and uh, Northumbria Universities? Uh, making proper application to Koru, getting fully legally registered here, uh, and using the power of the media, which has been sensationalist in an extent, uh, you know, maybe, and we'd be quite happy to put our, our shoulders to the wheel in, you know, in bettering their career, should they have the full accreditation uh, recognised by Koru. Is there a chance they'll do that, or are they burned out of the business now mentally? Well, Mick, I suppose they they have, you know, thousands and thousands of euros over their heads because this state agency insisted that their legal costs were paid um, and uh, they, you know, find themselves in very difficult financial uh, shoes and circumstances. They've had to liquidate their business. Uh, They owe 
uh, Coru, you know, in excess of, I think, 16,000 euros in legal fees that have to be paid. Um, and I, I don't know. I think they're both burnt out, but I'm sure, you know, and I'm trying to encourage them to, to think, uh, you know, about things going forward and to hopefully maybe get back a little bit of confidence mm-hmm. because certainly some of their patients and families that they worked with have contacted me by letter expressing support, uh, telling me how devastated they are that this service isn't available, uh, explaining to me that, you know, they found their service professional, that, that they helped them. And these are very vulnerable families, you know. So I, I, I would love to see them come back. And, and, I, and I'm sure your words there will mean a lot to them, but I don't know. Yeah, I hope they do, because I, I, I think in, in this sort of a situation, you've probably got to have Ireland, I'd rather emigrate. That must be what they're thinking. They must be emotionally uh, really, really charged and damaged by this, because it, I, I'm starting to see a bigger picture now than, than what the headlines would have given me cause to believe. And we, you know, neither wanted to make comments before now um, because we thought it was important that the case was concluded in advance of making comments. Sure, it was subdued uh, to say, neither, yeah. neither wanted to speak to you directly uh, because both of them, and from the outset, this has always been uh, a case that they have said, we will meet this with dignity, it was inadvertence, we're sorry. But there was never a lack of qualification. They were absolutely qualified to do the job they were doing, and they they were always devoted uh, people working with children, and that has come across from my initial consultation with them. It was their their work wasn't a commercial business; it was about the children. Mm-hmm. Well, Carrie, if if part of their healing and recovery process uh, is coming on here, uh, they certainly will get a fair hearing if if, if they're of a mind to do so. Thank you, Mick. Okay, and, and thank-, thank you to to Paul Byrne and Red FM for your your you know, precise reporting of this because I can, I can tell you, I, I never mind things being written um, in, a, in a correct way, but this case has been set out in the media in a, in a way that is sensationalist and, uh, you know, where the real facts haven't been um, properly discernible. And I think, you know, your, your station and Paul Byrne has, has done that. And I, I'm, I'm happy for, as a member of the public, to see that happen. It seems that Judge Con O'Leary was cognizant of that as well, with the, with the level of fine imposed. Yes, I mean, I suppose just to say, in terms of the fine, it, we, we were asked to plead guilty to 18 charges. Uh, we agreed with Coru to plead to six. Um, and each fine, or each charge, carried a €3,000 fine and or a term of imprisonment. So each uh, lady yesterday faced uh, €18,000 maximum fine. So you can see when Judge O'Leary imposed a €100 fine on all six per lady that his own view of this case uh, was that it was a very sad, minor matter. He had to impose some little fine because it was a plea. Um, but you can see the court's view was very much that um, I think, you know, these ladies... That their reputations, if, if, if not their perhaps naive practice, naive. has been vindicated. And as I said, they have paid the ultimate yeah. price. Okay, and we'd, we'd be happy to speak to them if, if you deem that appropriate and if they have uh, the desire to do so, Carrie. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you much. Man. Thanks. Thank bye bye. That's Carrie McDermott of MDM Solicitors, Emma Power, and Lisa O'Driscoll's solicitor. A jurisdictional registration case. The girls fully qualified and made huge attempts to deactify 
uh, and deactivate their uh, online presence, which is a complex issue. And not only were they fully qualified when they set up this business, they were 100% entitled to open the business in Ireland without registration. And the legislation changed subsequently, uh, causing them to retrospectively need to do different applications to qualify. So thanks to Carrie McDermott for speaking on their behalf. I want to go to line two because Jared's been holding for a while and I know he's got somewhere to go. Jared, thanks for holding. Okay. You yeah. ha- no, you've got a very happy story. You're Springer Spaniel, and we're going to be covering this uh, story. Um, yeah. We're going to be covering this story in more detail later in the program. Your Springer Spaniel, Jake, uh, yeah. was recovered by Garda Shane Hayes in Limerick after th- three, yeah. well, about three weeks after he'd been stolen. Tell us the story. Yeah. Well, and, uh, on, on the 24th of July, he was around the house there at dinner time, and he was gone when he was supposed to be fed at 6 o'clock. And I live in the farm and I checked around the farm and couldn't find any trace. And sometimes, you know, you might lock him into a shed for a period and he normally comes to the whistle and he didn't come. So we suspected straight away that he was stolen. And um, we went on social media and he's on Facebook and he was on Twitter last and found. And um, I put an ad in done deal for him that he was stolen. Mm-hmm. And heard nothing until about Wednesday of last week when a friend thought they recognised him in a picture that in the car that the guards had. Okay, uh, and that's and how Garda Shane Hayes got involved. Yes. Yeah. So you must they be you must be thrilled to get Jake back, but it, uh, of course it, it's a huge, huge problem. It's happening in every community yeah. now. Yeah. These dogs have value. A lot of them seem, uh, by our anecdotal evidence, seem to be getting up to the north across to Scotland and some yeah. of them even into Europe. Uh, and uh, we, I've had one, uh, one email to say that uh, 3,000 euros was, play, was paid for what they call a, a cross-Labrador poodle, a labradoodle. Yeah. yeah. So what does Jake mean to you? Well, he's a very important family pet and, um, you know, he, he's there all the time. I'd be going up and down to the farm and he'd be greeting you all the time. And we, I've had springers for over 40 years. So they're, part, they're an important part of my life. Okay. Does he do a little bit of, uh, any, any bit of work on the farm? Like, I don't know, any, any sort no, of gathering or sheep no. or anything like that? No, no. He's a springer dog and they wouldn't be. Okay. That wouldn't be their natural instincts. Pardon my lack of knowledge in, in all things dogs, but you must be extremely gar- grateful to Garda Shane Hayes now. Oh, I am. I'm very pleased that they did great work because it's a little bit like finding a needle in a haystack. I said they did very good police work to be able to, you know, to... And of course, Limerick, Limerick Animal Welfare were involved as well. Yes, and they, they looked after him exceptionally well. Okay. You know, but it was it really was luck of the draw, wasn't it, Jared? That's that someone who knew you and knew what Jake looked like um, was able to spot that yeah. picture. Yeah. Okay. All's well that all's well that ends well. But the bigger yeah. picture is, of course, uh, if you have dogs on your property and, and they are off a lead, which they're entitled to be when they're yeah. on your property, you've yeah. got to be extra vigilant these days. You do, and people should be careful in where they source dogs. If they want to get them from reputable places, buying them in a car park or someplace like that. They want to know where they're coming from. That's a very important point, actually, because yeah. doing that sort of practice, you're only fueling the demand yeah. and increasing the crime rate and the heartache yeah. from dogs that they're stolen. And, of course, dogs who want to be microchipped. Of course, yes. 
be able to identify him, yeah. Yeah, well done, Jared. Uh, we're happy yeah. for you. Springer Spaniel Jake, back in Carrie Guevara yeah. and back uh, yeah. in, in, in your love and care. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, Bye-bye. We will cover that topic a little later on, uh, hopefully with Vincent Cashman from Cork CSPCA. Uh, stolen dogs recovered, stolen dogs not recovered, heartbreaking families, and it seems to be an epidemic. It's 11 minutes to 10. This is the Neil Prenderville Show. Tweet the show at Neil Red FM. 104 to 106 Red FM. Just turned 10 to 10 and we go quickly now to Vincent Cashman uh, and to speak about the epidemic of dog theft. Uh, Cork-based animal welfare charity has predicted a major increase of abandoned dogs in, uh, a major increase of abandoned dogs and stolen dogs in the coming weeks. It's the CSPCA. Vincent Cashman joins us on the line. Uh, Good morning, Vincent. Good morning, Nick. We're seeing an epidemic now. I don't think there's a community that's not been affected by dog theft lately. Why has it become suddenly so prevalent, suddenly so profitable for criminals? Basically, when the coronavirus hit, you had people who were unfortunately laid off or put on furlough. They had time on their hands and um, many of them decided to take up a dog while they were off a few months and while they were going out for a walk. It would be something to do. Okay. Completely the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. And the problem is now, as the country starts to, the cogs start to grind forward again, what we are expecting is people who didn't have time for a dog before will discover, actually, do you know what? We don't have time for a dog now. And the dogs into the charities, we, we predict um, a massive increase, definitely, I'd say, from September, October on. Okay, so we didn't need a dog in the first place. We got one for the wrong reasons. Now we really realise we don't need or want a dog. So, uh, unlucky dog, we're giving you back to one of the pounds or one of the charities. Exactly. And the problem then is there was a shortage of dogs. So there was two things that definitely ran out during the coronavirus. Okay? Um, I don't know it's ongoing, but um, two things that, were, that were people wanted was bicycles and dogs. And there was a shortage of both. And the problem is then, when you have a shortage, it's basically the seller can sell at an increased price, and in some cases, three and four times the price that they were uh, pre-COVID, and they were making massive profits. But there wasn't enough dogs there, hence the rise in dog theft. These guys are getting far more sophisticated. Um, There is a trade in dogs going to the UK. The UK had a shortage of dogs anyway. And there are dogs that are being stolen in Ireland, ending up in England. Dogs in England and in Ireland turning up in France. Last week, there was a massive seizure of dogs by the police in France, 37 dogs, and people are trying to locate the owners. Now, How the are they transported across, across the sea? They, that's the million-dollar question, Mick. Okay, if you're transporting 30 animals, they will make noise. They will Unless you sedate them. them, I suppose. Unless you sedate them. But the problem with sedating them is um, they may not come round at the other side, depending on the breed of dog, depending on the care they've got. And in many cases, these are not... They're only a commodity. To sure, if dogs. they don't come around and, and you're a callous dog thief, it's cost of doing yes. business to you, isn't it? it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, in Ireland, you, they are using drones. Thieves are using drones. Especially in rural communities, on farmyards and areas where machinery are used. But no, they're doing it. There's, there's some kennels where the dogs have been stolen. And they're well off the beaten track. You would have a job to find them yourself. 
but they're using drones to scan the houses. And apparently so now they're, they're going into housing estates and parking up in cars, not in vans anymore, which are, you know, they're, they're, they're yeah, the kind of obvious. obvious. The vans have been twigged. Mm-hmm. So if you're going into an area, especially with the amount of people that are out, if, if you have a child and they're after getting a new puppy, they're, they're, they might to show people that they're after getting a new dog, they might take it out the front. It only takes a couple of seconds for somebody to take their eye off the ball and the dog is gone. Yeah. And, and what kind of values are these dogs fetching? Uh, some of them. We've had, we've had rapport. Would you say, for example, now, um, Collie Crosses, which will be a very popular breed in Ireland. And a very calm yeah. breed, aren't they? A very calm breed, right. Pre-COVID, you would be, no, I values on it, but you'd be looking at maybe about 150, 200 euros, there or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, they're upwards of six, 700 euros. I have a friend who went to a pound in a different county, actually, in Kerry, uh, to uh, pick up a rescue dog, but, but the dog, dog was actually uh, homed properly before, before that happened. And, and what was there, and not advertised because the pound would have been inundated, or the shelter, I suppose, not the pound, would have been inundated, was uh, a purebred Labrador bitch, uh, unneutered, and uh, eventually found a very good home in our friend. Uh, but, uh, was you know, he's also cognizant, this is a gold mine, I can... I could, if I was of a mind, breed this with a with a purebred poodle and make about twenty five grand from Labradoodles. That's not my intention. Uh, and the dog found a very good home. So, what would you advise people to do? Buy them from reputable sources or from reputable shelters? Okay. The the, the main thing to do during COVID, the majority of shelters were not sending dogs out for the very reasons I said that we're only going to see the dogs back. The reason that they could go out for a walk, take a stick. You don't need a dog on a lead to mm-hmm. encourage you to go out for a walk. You didn't need anything in your hands. But they just said, well, we're going to get a dog for this. Don't bother. So a lot of the shelters um, stopped sending out animals. Um, so they were going to advertising websites and buying them on, the, on, on sites like this. That's where the problem lies. You have some very, very good breeders. And this isn't anti-breeder. If we had no breeders of dogs in Ireland, Europe, we would have no dogs. Mm-hmm. But just people have to do their homework. One of the biggest problems is microchipping. Every dog in the country, when it leaves its mother, if it goes to Vincent Cashman breeds a litter of pups. And my litter then, Mick Mulcahy, is coming down to view one of the dogs. I have to finish quickly, Vincent, so please be no, brief. All, so it's, it, but this is important, don't Mick, because uh-huh. this is where people are making the mistake with this. They go in, they get the microchip paperwork, right? The paperwork that Mick gets, that pup, must be already registered to Vincent Cashman. So you're getting a microchip certificate registered to Vincent Cashman. A lot of the microchip sorts are made up. I see. They're using 16 digits. The numbers aren't even in sequence. And they're, it, it, there's a very, very simple way of doing it. And people so don't know what they're looking for either. Uh, Vincent, I'd love to come back to it at a later date maybe. And maybe we'll do it before I finish up next week. But thanks for that brief enlightenment anyway. I have to leave it there, I'm afraid. No problem at all. Thanks a million. Vincent Cashman. The Neil Prenderville Show. With Tesco. Save time and shop online. Simply log on to tesco.ie. And good morning from the Neil Prenderville Show. This is Mick Mulcahy. Such is the lot of live radio that often an interview will be coming up and you've got news to do at the top of the hour and it has to be cut short. And uh, I didn't want to uh, cut you off so short, Vincent. So welcome back. I should have asked you to stay over until after 10. Uh, but such is the lot of trying to time out for the news team, which deserve to be starting their job on time as well. So you were giving me a very important point on, on uh, the uh, registration of dogs electronically, which is the microchip. Hello? Sorry, Vincent, my apologies. You're on that line. Sorry, Vincent, you're back. Did you hear all that? 
I did. Yeah, okay. So carry on if you would, please. Sorry we had to interrupt you for the news. Basically, it's it's down to dog microchipping, okay? So if any of the... I suppose just to give you a a viewpoint on this, there was supposed to be a meeting. There are four registered um, dog microchipping databases in Ireland, okay? Um, Between FIDO, Animark, the Irish Kennel Club and the Irish Horse Club. And any of those chip numbers, they all pay, I suppose it's a subscription to Europecnet, okay? So Europecnet, if we put a number into um, our search databases here, we can find out whether the chip is registered or not, okay? But we can also find out who the chip is registered to, mm-hmm. okay? So Mick Mulcahy goes away and he breeds a litter of pups. He goes down to his local um, vet surgery to get his, his uh, litter microchipped. Those chips of the six, seven pups, whatever it is, they should be all registered to Mick Mulcahy. Okay, and then the, once the pups are sold, what happens? The, the, the certificate goes to Joe Bloggs, and it is up to Joe Bloggs then to change the details from Mick Mulcahy to Joe Bloggs. So it's not so like selling a car, Vincent, it's where, 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 where it's incumbent. Like if you're selling a car, you fill out the uh, the vehicle registration form or whatever it is, you send it off to County Clare. Uh, and and I suppose the overriding reason here is I don't want to be getting a, a parking tickets from Vincent Cashman if he buys a car. Yeah. So the it's incumbent on me to uh, transfer the car over to your name. Not not so with dogs. No, it's it's down to the new owner, which is actually a mistake. Okay. Now there was a meeting with the the four uh, groups and the Department of Agriculture scheduled for this week. It's actually been postponed until next week. Some of the microchip numbers that are appearing on the websites are fraudulent. They're being made up, and plus the fact that they put up any the new rules in regarding to sale and supply of animals. Any animal that's advertised, particularly dogs and cats, their microchip number must be on the ad. Okay? But what's actually happening is they're putting up a litter of pups, five, six, seven, but they're only putting up one microchip number. Uh-huh. That has to change. So it should be all of the microchip numbers for each of the pups on the ad. Now, what we're going to run out here as well is, if Joe Blogg, because it's happening, it's, it's, we're getting calls every day about it, um, and what's actually happening is people are buying dogs in garages, the sides of a road and stuff like that, against all, um, I suppose, advice that they've been given. And good practice. Be, it's not good practice. It's not good practice, because you should be meeting the parents of the dog. So the pup you're buying, you have to go to Joe Blogg's garden, you have to see the interaction between the pup and the mother particularly, right? If there's no interaction, it's not the mother of the pups. Uh-huh. Um, and these are little things that people are getting caught out on. Plus, they're not doing the homework. I mean, microchipping has been around now four years, but still people don't know what it's about. It's not, it can't be tracked by NASA, the dog has to be scanned. But it, the microchipping is vital. It's not a GPS so tracking device, in other words. It's not a GPS tracking device. So what we're advising people to do, if they're in the process of buying a dog, now, that they can, and the likes of ourselves here, they can contact us. Mick Mulcahy is buying a dog. Can I ask, can you ask the breeder, can I get the microchip number of that dog? The breeder who, if it's legit, will give you the microchip number and you can get the details checked for the microchip. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. The likes of the ad, the, but you can't. The likes of the advertising sites at the moment, what they should have access to is your petnet. So GDPR isn't being um, infringed at all with this. What they can do is they can come along and this is the microchip number of the dog. Is that microchip number registered? Real, okay. Yes, and registered to that particular breed. 
Because what they'll think then as well is, they'll say, is that microchip number registered? Yes, it is. But it could be registered for a Chihuahua and you're buying a Great Dane. I see. So the microchip number must be registered. And it must be, as the logbook in the car, it's coming from the owner. If it's not, don't buy it. You're not buying a photocopy. People are putting up um, the front cover. The dog is vaccinated and all they're showing is the front cover of the vaccination record. There might, there might be a blank copy. The front, if they're show, being given the, the, the vaccination details, the breed of the dog should be on the form, who was vaccinated by, the date it was vaccinated. All of these details are vital. I mean, you, you wouldn't buy um, TVs or anything like that without instructions on how to work these things. These are very, very simple. And it's, it's more humane. We got an email yesterday from a person who bought a dog and it was dead two days later because of parvovirus. Wow. Uh, Vincent, are, are experts like you advising the powers that be in government or advising the powers that be who own the, you know, the, um, the stuff for sale websites, shall we say? Um, uh, I wouldn't be an expert anyway, Mick. But I, I think the, the, anybody we're speaking to, right, we're trying to advise them from what we're learning on the ground. And I think what they're, they, they need to speak to people on the ground dealing with these circumstances a little bit more. What will work, what won't work. Now, what I'm saying is just my opinion on it from what we're seeing. There may be other ways out there of doing it, but there, gen- there has to be a consensus. Four years down the road, the microchipping is still not working. You're still getting people. They are trying to do it, but they're doing it piecemeal. They're doing it piece by piece. Every, every year, they're trying to change something. It's it's nonsense. You have you, it's, it needs to be um, brought in. The fines need to be imposed, as they are imposed in every other country. That will fix the problem. So the fines don't match the crime here. Um, no, they, if you if you're caught with the fines in the legislation are up to five thousand euros. If you're, if you're caught I, with I, a dog, what stolen or? or with, with, without the dog being microchipped, okay. the fines are quite hefty. But I have yet to, I have I. Not known of anybody being fined yet in this country for having no dog microchipped about four years in. So it needs, the people need to do their homework. Paying excessive figures for the dogs is nonsense. 3,000 euros for Labradoodles is nonsense. And all they're doing is putting a price on their heads and then we're not breeding enough of them and there's too many dogs being stolen. In, in the UK alone, right, their market, their new market every year is about 900,000 dogs. Through replacements, new pets, and dogs that have died. Okay, so they need to produce nine hundred thousand dogs a year. Wow. Okay, they can at the moment they're only breeding between seven hundred and fifty and eight hundred thousand. So there's a demand. There's a demand, and that other hundred thousand dogs is coming from Ireland and Europe. Okay, but they but they need to be stepped up at at, at the ports as well. If the paperwork isn't right, the dog should be uh, confiscated. So it's only a paperwork issue for transport. It's uh, a microchip number authenticity issue for the advertising websites, and yes. it's it's the full implementation and proper implementation of the microchip program, which of course should be allied and connected to a dog license. I would imagine. You would think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> you would think so. It's Ireland, but it, but it's but it's not. All right, it's it's not. It should have been. It was recommended to tie the two together so that your microchip is tied to your dog license. Mm-hmm. It was it was knocked down. Yeah. Against everybody's advice, it was not done. But that's 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 what we had. Now it may change. Hopefully, it will. 
because for a country with 5 million people, we make things very, very complicated. Okay, Vincent Cashman of the CSPCA, sorry for cutting you off so quickly no, no before 10, and, 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 and thanks for coming back on to clarify everything. Thanks so no much. Cheers, bye-bye. No That's Vincent okay. Cashman of the Cork Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Good morning, Claire. Hi, Mick. Um, I just wanted to warn people there to find out if anyone else has had my experience. Um, on Tuesday, um, I went off to um, the shop, came back about 15, I was gone about 15 minutes. But as I came back, um, what looked to me was a corporation truck and two workers. There was one in the driver's seat and there was one out at the side of the road. So as I approached them, I assumed they were just um, cleaning up loose leaves and gravel around the curb of the footpath. So I said, not to disturb them, not to be in their way, I park over somewhere else. So I did, and I walked down my steps, and I went in home, but I left my front door open. So as I turned around to come back out to close my front door, I heard one guy call out my address. Call out your address? Now, hang on, they were stopped outside your house, and they called out your address? They did. They were stopped. Now, they were parallel to my house so I wouldn't have been able to see a reg so they were parked parallel one guy was there he looked a bit suspicious he was pretending to be shoveling up loose leaves and things so I went in but I had my groceries in my hand so I wasn't able to lock my door so I went straight into the kitchen put the stuff on the worktop and as I turned to walk out I heard him call out the number of my house and my estate so I thought that was very strange so I locked the door and then as I came back in, I kind of said to myself, God, that's, that didn't sound right. Why did they call out my house? So I went back out and they were gone. So straight away, I thought they're not corporation workers because they would have had to finish. If they were there to do a, re- a job, yeah. they would have had to do it around the whole green. So they were gone. So I kind of was thinking about it for a while. And about half an hour later, I went up to, to have a look to see had they cleaned up what they looked like they were cleaning up and nothing had been touched. You'd know. Excuse me, you'd know it was old gravel, it was still the old leaves, nothing had been touched. And then I spotted a white or a yellow marking on the curb. It's about a foot long, just nothing else, just a yellow marking. So I, I knew I had heard something about, I said, they're either watching my house or they're watching my dog. So I got into the car and I drove around to see if I could see them in any of the other states. And I couldn't see nothing. Well, there we go. I, so it looks like a council truck, does it? It does. And I rang the council. I rang them yesterday and I told them my story and they said, look, we'll have to make a few phone calls because it could be different departments. And I said, fine. And to be fair, they rang me back first thing this morning and they said, no, it wasn't us. Now, it does look like a council van. It's, we said the truck at the front and then the back of it for all the world is like, you know, where they have their brushes and yeah, their... Yeah, caboose, um, I think they call it. Yeah, and you, you'd know, like, they kind of had a bit of rubbish in there, you know, things like that. So I genuinely thought they're cleaning up the, the leaves because there is a little um, shore where they marked. And I thought, oh, maybe they're clearing for the shore for the water because I'm kind of down a slight little hill. So the water runs down if there's yeah. any bit of rain. And I thought, oh, they're clearing that. But when I went back out to look, they hadn't cleared it. And today is Thursday and no one has come back to clear it. Yeah, I've heard stories before um, of scouts that go out. Now, some of them might be offering to clean your gutters or your chutes. Some of them might be offering to do a bit of gardening. Some of them might be offering to maybe do a little bit of tarmac at them, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, and 
really what these guys are are scouts for a thieving team, I suppose. Yes, uh, and they 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 look at a house with you know they get to look in your front window. They call it call to your front door. They'll see some uh, desirable goods inside. Uh, they'll ascertain whether you have uh, an alarm and whether it's a working alarm, whether the lights are flicking on it or whatever. Yes. Um, and they'll ascertain whether you have a guard dog or a thievable dog of value. And then outside as they leave, they leave a, a little red mark, a white mark, a yellow mark or a blue mark or something outside your house. Yes. So that, that gives all of the information. Just one simple mark that you mightn't take any dose of gives all the information to the thieving team when they come around to do whatever they need to do to, to steal from Well, you see, Mick, normally we'd say where I'm living on my dock, um, everyone's car would be parked. We'd say at the top of my, like we say, you've got my garden and then there's the footpath and everyone drives, let's say, straight in to the parking spaces. But on Tuesday, of course, everyone was at work. Now, my car would always be on the top of my garden so people would know that that car belongs to my house. Like if you didn't know me. So I had gone to the shop so I was, I was literally gone 15 minutes. So there was no cars outside my front door. You know, for the whole block, everyone was gone to work. Mm-hmm. So there was no cars outside there. Now, if you come down my steps to my house, my sitting room window, when you go into that sitting room, I have double doors. So I had them open because it was such a lovely day. And that goes, you can see straight out through my patio door. So they kind of had a full view out and my dog is sitting out the back. Okay. So they, as you say, if they were watching my house, they were able to see through my house. Let's not mention um, the breed of dog now or the park, or they'll no, be back. No, absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. So they were able to see through my house, and they might have seen my dog walking around. Now, we walk my dog um, around the area. So, I'm, like, no matter when you'd take my dog out, everyone, you'd always be stopped because... She is a lovely dog mm-hmm. and people would always stop and admire her. So we're thinking, now, are we being watched when we're out walking our dog? You know, do people know we have this dog? Because, like, she's never left out, obviously, on her own or anything. So, and she's always kept out the back or in the house. So are we I, I think once you keep her in the house or out the back or on a lead when you're walking, uh, then short of somebody running up, cutting the lead and grabbing the dog, you should be pretty safe. Yeah. The only thing is I'd be afraid of, like, as I say, were they watching my house? Or were they watching my dog? Now, I have two teenage children. So they were being in, they were, were at home on the Tuesday when I went to the supermarket. But being teenagers, it was early in the morning. They were in bed. So my fear would be that if someone knocked at the door and thought there was no one in the house when there really was. They go around the back and take the dog. Yes. Yeah. Or break into my house, worst case, you know, yeah. which is worse. I don't know which is worse at this stage because we love the dog. The kids just idolize the dog. You know, she's our life. She's part of the family, you know, yep. they love her. We love her to bits. So either way, my house or the dog, not realising my two ki- my two teenagers were in bed. And the city council says it's nothing at all to do with them. And no. really it isn't because they, how are they going to police this kind of thing? But I suppose it does call for greater community awareness, especially in a collective of houses in a park. Maybe have a residence association meeting or WhatsApp group or email to say, lads, we've got to keep watching out for this suspicious activity. Exactly. It's not just dogs they're going to be taking. It could be electronics, could be car. Uh, and watch out for any sort of surreptitious markings outside your house and get rid of them. But their truck, really, like, the minute I drove in, I kind of thought, council workers. I spoke to my neighbour, Tudor Stone, and she had seen them. And I said, who do you think they were? She said, council workers. And okay. then when I told her what happened after, so they are going around 
giving people the impression that they are council workers. And when the guy from the council this morning said, we did clean a particular area of where you're living, but it was out on the main road. It was not in the estates. Okay. So they're giving the impression they're council workers, but they're up to no good. Yes. So just to warn people, if anyone else had the same experience or have noticed any yellow markings or any other colour markings, out of blue, because this yellow marking stands out because obviously there's nothing else yellow. You know, the curves are painted white and that, so... You know, yeah. we keep our estate and it's all painted white and all that and we keep it well. And this yellow marking just does stand out. Yeah. And, so f- and does, for does anyone, anyone, anyone who gets people offering services to their door, uh, you know, like the gutter cleaning or clean your yeah. sites or do your drive or sweep, whatever, uh, just be very wary uh, around that sort of thing. Uh, challenge yeah. them. Look, look, look for a business card. Take a registration number of a vehicle that they're in. But they'll often just walk into estates so their reg number can't be taken. Well, that's the way they the way if you had known if you know the estate and you saw the way they were parked, there was no way you could get their reg unless you drove past them, reversed and tur- you know came around and faced them. Yeah, but if something looks suspicious like that, make it make a point of getting the reg oh, the next time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, Claire, thanks a million. Okay, thanks, Mick. All the best, you know. Thanks, bye-bye. Right, bye. Now, as expected, we've got a text message regarding the two girls and the court case uh, which was adjudicated yesterday. Um, in, uh, I think Cork District Court. Hi, Mick. Hope you get to read out my message. Uh, I know Emma Power and she is the nicest girl you could meet. Never a bad word to say about anyone. I know how much stress this has caused to her and her family. I know she loves her job with every inch of her being. She takes pride in her work and gives it all her attention. Without a doubt, she is professional in what she does. She takes care of the kids like they are her own. I'm absolutely gutted that this has happened to them because I feel like the kids she looked after are going to suffer. In a sense, they are so used to Emma and her colleagues looking after them. It's a shame. I just wish people on social media weren't so fast to judge in a world full of nasty people. Please be nice. Thanks for reading my text, Mick, from another Emma uh, who texted in on 0868104106. If you have experience uh, of... Uh, and Carrie McDermott spoke very eloquently on the program about an hour ago. Uh, and if you have experience of the two girls and their practice, Lisa O'Driscoll uh, and Emma Power, then uh, please do feel free to call one eight five zero one zero four one zero six, text zero eight six eight one zero four one zero six, or email Neil at redfm.ie. And as I said, the door is open. Should uh, either of the ladies, Lisa or Emma, wish to come on and tell their side of the story on Cork's Red FM, talk to Neil Prenderville now. 1851-04106 Red FM It's 10.30, the programme's flying along as it always does. I want to give a quick mention to our most fervent and dedicated listener uh, and he loves getting a mention when I'm on and he's always listening as he's doing his tiling and his plastering and all that kind of thing and his name is Gussie O'Callaghan and he's 82 and he's still available for work. Uh, so well done to you Gussie, you put other people to shame uh, doing all that sort of physical labour and always has the wireless with him uh, to listen to the Neil Prendival show and loves when I give him a mention. So good morning Gussie O'Callaghan from Grange. Now I have a remarkable letter that came in by email. Uh, please pay attention to it, it is so profound it, and, and really encapsulates where many people stand in the whole Covid situation. I know people are as sick of Covid-19 now as they were of Brexit back then. Wouldn't we love to have Brexit back now with no COVID? But have a listen to this letter. Uh, and it's titled, I hate saying it, but I am totally preparing to get sick. Uh, as family students and teachers, of course, brace themselves for a school year that starts in less than a month, just to give you context in this letter, many teachers are pushing back against plans that require them to teach in person. 
Uh, and this second level teacher who wrote this letter lays out the concerns of many in the teaching profession. And here it is. Hi, Mick. I'm not going to lie. COVID-19 scares me. But I'm a teacher. It's not just what I do. It's who I am. Plus, I have four kids to support. So I feel lucky to have a job. And I thoroughly enjoy it. I love my college and my students. But it's hard to balance that with my concern for my own children and my fears. I feel locked in an impossible choice as long as there are still growing numbers of cases of COVID-19. I hate saying it, but I am totally preparing to get sick. I myself am in the midst of trying to figure out if I have an autoimmune disorder. It's been a very stressful time. I feel returning to class will be dangerous for teachers like myself with underlying health issues. As I see it, there are two possible plans for September and no real decisions being made at cabinet level. Plan A. Fewer students back at school at the same time. Or plan B, moving to online-only instruction. Plan A necessitates that students learn at school part-time and partly at home. Returning to in-person instruction is unrealistic. Students will simply ignore health requirements to wear masks and stay six feet apart from their peers. Of course, I feel that in-person learning is optimal for students. However, nothing about a deadly global pandemic is optimal. As an educator... I feel the personal attention from teachers that many young children respond to will be blunted by requirements to stay six feet away from each other. After several months of restricted movement, it's unreasonable for adults to expect older students to adhere to all of the requirements to keep the virus at bay. It's unreasonable to expect second-level students who have not seen each other for six months and who have questionable behaviour choices without a pandemic to faithfully follow safety protocols. If we opt for plan A, on the two days they are in school, they will be anxious about safety and or focused on socialising. And essentially, those days will be useless for learning. We have had no clarity from the Minister if teachers should return to in-person instruction, even if they or their loved ones at home are at risk of serious injury or death from COVID-19. We are between two spots and it doesn't feel like there's much concern about us, the teachers. Some parents are attempting to belittle my profession by suggesting I and other teachers were doing very little over lockdown, faking empathy and doling out pre-prepared study notes. This is the furthest from the truth. I'm very worried in what's coming down the track, not just because we can get sick and possibly die. No one is taking our side. We know it's not going to be education as usual this September and that we need to adapt. I know a number of primary school teachers who are in a state of panic Teachers for junior infants through sixth class are worried about transmitting COVID-19 to students and they could give it to their at-risk adults. I'm not sure whether teachers will still be required to go to the schools every day to teach, but we're more ready now to teach virtually than we were in March when the government closed the schools ahead of the coronavirus's rapid spread around our country. We've had a couple of months to plan and we've been through it in the spring. We know the kinks we need to work out to make that a better system for our students. For teachers who also have young children, Plan B poses a conundrum. Plan B is nearly impossible for staff members with young and school-aged children. Many childcare centres have closed, making childcare difficult or impossible to find. Teachers might also consider a leave of absence, leaving the school, scrambling to find temporary staff. Uh, Or teachers may leave altogether, putting the school in a very precarious position. If the only option was to teach in person... More than half of teachers in my school may not want to return to class. It's time to work as a team and not every man for himself. Please keep my details private 
for obvious reasons. That is the heartfelt letter of a teacher, very, very worried about going back and feeling a little bit deserted uh, by you know, lack of clarity from the government at this time. Now, I'm joined on the line by Pat Mullins of BDM Boylan Solicitors, who is an employment expert and lectures in employment law. Good morning to you, Pat. Morning, Mick. How are you? Very good. Uh, I was looking forward to speaking to you because I know you'll be very eloquent in this area. It's your area of expertise. Uh, and that is, uh, we had a caller on during the week uh, relaying certain confusion in the workplace regarding work practices uh, regarding the difference in the grey area between moral and legal requirements around wearing masks and in general on-floor practice and uh, I suppose face-to-face practice between customer and server or customer and shop assistant or customer and shelf stacker, etc. So communication and negotiation with the workforce, I would imagine, if not happening, should be key at this stage, Pat. Yeah, it is. I, I, I suppose the first thing I would say is that... Um, there probably is an absence of proper regulations coming from the government in relation to the matter. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, we have a, a press conference which announces that face coverings are mandatory next week. Um, and then when you analyse it, you realise that um, it's not actually mandatory um, because they haven't introduced regulations. Um, so um, the only thing we can be certain about at the moment is that there's a massive amount of uncertainty. Um, and, you know, this particular lady, and, and I've read the email, um, I mean, clearly um, the fundamentals of any relationship between an employer and an employee is one of communication. And every time I'm involved in a an employment law case, whether it's at WC or otherwise, um, you will find nine times out of ten that at the heart of the dispute was a, um, a, a complete loss of communication at a certain point in time. And everything here has to be put in context because, you know, I can understand the employer's perspective and I can understand the employee's perspective. And if I just deal with the employer's perspective for a second, um, as an employer, I have an obligation to provide a safe place of work to my staff. Um, and that is a statutory obligation. Um, I also have to comply with the Health and Safety Authority's uh, protocols, uh, which are very detailed in relation to dealing with COVID-19. Um, and that, again, is a statutory regime. Um, and I have um, a liability uh, to potentially to a member of staff if, by reason of my breach of duty or negligence, um, one of my staff contracts COVID-19. Um, so that's the backdrop against which the employer is looking at it. And I understand that perspective. From the employee's perspective... And there is a lot of anxiety about being at work. There's a lot of anxiety about exposure. There's a lot of anxiety about coming back to people who are vulnerable or who have been cocooning and putting them at risk. Um, And therefore, the manner in which an employer and employee must engage in relation to COVID-19 protections uh, must be very careful. It must be deliberate. It must be done by way of consultation. And the HSA have given, in my view, very good guidance on this, whereby, in effect, every workplace... Uh, must have an employee representative and the employer cannot just simply, in my view, um, issue diktats to say this is the way it is um, without having a proper uh, explanation as to why a policy needs to change, mm-hmm. um, take questions in relation to why the policy needs to change, listen to feedback from the staff in relation to what may or may not work because they're on the floor and you have to value their opinion and sometimes you can miss things as an employer uh, because you're not out on the floor. Um, and in collaboration, the employer and employee should come up with a balanced program that protects the staff, protects the customers and complies with the guidelines issued by the uh, government. Um, now, 
That is not happening on the ground in a lot of cases. Um, it's covered, I think, Pat, by the marketing cliche. We're opening, and of course, the safety of our staff and customers is paramount in our minds. But legally and effectively behind the scenes, what needs to happen? Uh, how does an employee mandatorily have to wear a mask? That obviously can't happen without a proper risk assessment taking place, and it can't be ordered by management unless that's so. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's exactly correct. I mean, there are industries where, as you know, um, uh, protective equipment is compulsory. So if you're working in a pharmaceutical plant, you'll be wearing uh, protective equipment. If you're working in surgery, you're going to be wearing protective equipment. But those are long-standing uh, customs and practice which have built up in particular industries. We're now asking people for the first time um, in retail outlets uh, to wear face masks. Um, and the difficulty with that is that... Um, the issue at the moment is that the government has said two days ago, you, you must wear a face mask, and that applies also to staff. But there is a twist in that because, you know, in the picture email that I've seen, um, the employer has told the particular member of staff, you must wear a face mask. But the government guidance on this is not exactly what they're saying it is because retail staff are, will only be required under the regulations which are being drafted, but we haven't seen yet. But I know from the government press release on it that they'll be required to wear a face covering unless there is a partition between them and members of the public or where there is a distance of two metres between them and members of the public. So it is entirely possible for somebody working in certain environments, if they're working behind a screen, not to be compelled to wear a face mask. Um, so the difficulty here is that sometimes the employers are misinterpreting the guidance. And, um, you know, uh, as I say, a little knowledge is always very dangerous, Mick. And uh, some people are not doing the homework. Um, and uh, as I said, um, if I have an issue that arises or if the rules change or the public health guidance changes, I have to engage with my employee representative. We have to take out what policy we have at the moment. Uh, we have to uh, put it back up and have a look and come up with a new method of working. And it has to be done collaboratively. Um, and where it's not done collaboratively, you're going to have major industrial relations issues. And I'm talking about uh, non-unionised employments here. Um, and, and in you know, unionised employment, of course, it could shut down the whole operation. If an employee, Pat, uh, uh, puts forward an uncomfortable situation, an unwillingness, if you like, to wear a face covering because they suffer, one, anxiety, two, breathing issues, three, yeah. maybe claustrophobic issues, have special needs, uh, is it incumbent on the employer then to look at relocating them to where they don't have to wear a mask? Absolutely, it is. Um, and, uh, you know, the law here would even stray into the area of disability. So, for example, under equality legislation, um, uh, if I approach my employer and say, look, by reason of a particular disability, and in this case, I would say if somebody has an underlying condition uh, and cannot wear a face mask, that would come under the heading of disability. Um, the employer has an obligation under Section 16 of the Act to make reasonable accommodation. Now, that reasonable accommodation may very well be working remotely. It may be working in a, a, an isolated part of the building. Um, but you have to look at all of the alternatives. Um, and that is something which employers need to do. It is not black and white. It is not a case of um, you must wear a face mask or else. Um, the reality is if an employee raises what I would call a reasonable uh, issue with respect to wearing a face mask and all the issues that you've mentioned there, in my view, are reasonable, the employer must consider them and the employer must be seen to accommodate that. Now, the law doesn't say that the employer has to go and almost put a prefab out the back for you. Uh, it, it, the law doesn't require that. But effectively, as long as I'm able to do my job, and there is a reasonable opportunity for me to do it other than 
on the shop floor, the employer has an obligation mm-hmm. to accommodate me. And again, the problem here, if you ask me, Mick, is that there's an awful lot of um, lack of understanding of the nuances of these things. But at the heart of it, I think, you know, just reading that email, it seems to me that these um, diktats are being issued uh, without any consultation. And to be quite frank about it, some of the diktats are factually incorrect. Um, and, and we have, of course, the government saying, Pat, we, uh, you know, we don't want you to travel, but here's a list of green countries. If, uh, if an employee uh, uptakes a holiday that they'd pay for maybe pre-COVID and goes away to a red list country for, for two weeks, what happens in their return? Are they morally or legally obliged to self-isolate or can the employer demand that they self-isolate? And if so, at whose cost? Okay, uh, I suppose two issues there. Um, I mentioned at the start of the interview the fact that the employer has an obligation to provide a safe place of work, but employees also have an obligation under the same legislation not to pose a threat to their colleagues. Um, and if, uh, and I suppose my advice to employers would be, and I, and I know sometimes I, I advise employers and employees, but um, the reality here is that if 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 I have booked a holiday to uh, a non green list comp- uh, country, uh, because we don't technically have a red list, but you can assume everything on the green list is red, uh, and then I return, um, uh, the government health advice is that I should I, I should self isolate uh, for fourteen days as an employer. I am entitled to ask you to self-isolate in those circumstances because I'm protecting all of the other members of staff um, from infection. The so is that an extra two weeks holidays, Pat, at your own cost, or is that you can, <laughs> no, no, you can, you can work for home, from home and we'll pay you? Well, yeah, I mean, look, look again, this comes down to planning and it comes down to discussion and so forth. I mean, what you don't want is a situation, Mick, where people are, you know, saying that they're, that they're down in, in Killarney and they're in Portugal mm-hmm. or they're in Spain um, because they're afraid to tell anybody because then we end up with a, you know, a crazy situation whereby, you know, people are not disclosing uh, a potential uh, risk. I mean, we heard the other day that uh, SIP2 were telling us that some of the nurses weren't uh, volunteering information because they were afraid that they wouldn't get their uh, overtime. You know, we can't have a situation arising whereby, you know, what is a really, really significant and potentially life-threatening condition, um, uh, that there are disincentives for staff to be honest. Um, and in relation to isolation, the position is that if you work with the HSE or in, in many public sector uh, positions, the, you know, the position is clear that you're, if you're told to self-isolate, you will get your basic pay and fixed allowances. You will not get your overtime. And that seems to be the issue with uh, to the other day. In the private sector, it entirely depends on what's in your contract. And I can tell you that there isn't a contract in the country that would have legislated for a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and also the other thing is that you're not entitled as of right to sick pay and um, that is a matter of contract between an employer and an employee. And um, so therefore, the vast majority of people have no sick pay scheme. Are you entitled to sick to days, Pat? Are you entitled to maybe four, five, six, day, sick days paid? Yes, 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 of course you are. Because, I mean, it, it, like, well, you're not entitled to sick days paid by your employer unless there's paid sick leave in your, poly- in, okay. in your contract. But, I mean, if you're asking me, can you take certified sick leave because your doctor has recommended that you self-isolate, the answer is yes. So there are a number of potential issues here. If I come back from... Portugal, um, uh, uh, and and uh, I'm told to self-isolate. Um, now, I could continue working remotely if that's an option and stay on full pay. Um, so as long as I'm not coming into the work environment, that's that's one option. Number two is I go to my doctor and my doctor uh, gives me a certificate today that I must self-isolate because of the risk of uh, contracting because I was away in those circumstances. Uh, if, if, if my contract of employment says that I'm entitled to a certain amount of sick leave, 
then I'm covered by that. If not, I have to claim disability from the Department of Social Protection. The third option is that I would temporarily lay you off for 14 days because there's no sick pay scheme and you could then potentially claim the COVID payment for the uh, for the two weeks and then okay. come back. And the Department of Social Protection have been very quick in getting that uh, those COVID payments out at the beginning when they were needed. I suppose one other thing, uh, whether you're a contractor or whether you're an employee, that your 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 contract cannot be altered by your employer without consultation. So no. pandemic or not, they can't change your terms of employment. No, um, subject to this, and this is this goes back to the point I made at the very start, is that every contract of employment um, is a, a matter of contract and freedom to uh, uh, agree matters between an employer and employee, subject to the fact that it is also governed uh, by all statutory rights. So, for example, maternity leave, parental leave, uh, force majeure leave are all statutory entitlements. It doesn't matter if they're not in your contract, you're entitled to them. So, therefore, my view is that if the government are announcing things that will impact upon the workplace, they should introduce the regulations because that takes away an awful lot of the uncertainty. So in the example, going back to this retail worker, if the employer is directed by regulation um, uh, to introduce um, the wearing of face masks compulsorily by all staff, then they have no choice. Um, But, you know, the difficulty here is that uh, apart from that, an employer has no right whatsoever to change the terms and conditions of employment of an employee without agreement or consent. And that goes back to the very first point I made about consultation, which is that, you know, we are in a pandemic. um, We are in crazy times. um, We've all had to change things we do personally, things we do professionally, the way we work in my own job. It's crazy going to court. Um, we can't even sit in some places. We have queue outside the door in Washington Street. We're around allocated times. It's you know it's entirely different to the norm. Um, but all of those are done by consultation and agreed by consultation. And to be quite frank about it, in my experience, really good employers have a very good working relationship with their staff. They sell what they're about. They tell them what the issue is. They explain the options. They put it out to them for their input, and then they agree a position. And if they do, they shouldn't need your services, Pat. But uh, have you been busier since the pandemic? Uh, Really busy. Um, uh, Well, particularly in employment law. Um, And in fact, if I could just mention one thing that's coming across my desk a fair bit in the last number of days. And again, I'm not criticising government for introducing the COVID payment. Um, I I, I absolutely agree that at the time it was necessary. The difficulty that I'm seeing now um, is where you have members of staff who um, are, were working limited hours, maybe less than 20 hours a week, um, and their businesses are now reopening, and uh, they're not returning to work because they're making more money on the COVID payment. Okay. Um, and that is a huge problem, Mick, um, and particularly you see it in the crescent, uh, in crashes and so forth, um, that some of the staff there were, you know, maybe earning 250 a week. Um, they're already more on COVID. Um, and uh, I'm not going to go into the politics of it. All I will say is that uh, those people are in a slight difficulty because if they refuse to, if they refuse to return to work, they're now off layoff. Um, they run the risk of losing the COVID payment and also having had resigned from their job, in which case they might need oh, to get unemployment uh, benefit. A so, specific question, you know, sorry Pat, we're out, nearly out of time, a specific question. A caller asks, if you work in a place where there are no union representation, have you any rights? Yes, you do. Um, the uh, the uh, HSA guidance on COVID particularly uh, obliges an employer to appoint an employee representative, even if there is no union. 
Um, and it's it, if, if you go to the HSA website and you look at the COVID-19 uh, protocols, which are binding, um, there is an obligation on me as an employer to appoint an employee representative in relation to all okay. matters regarding policies and procedures for COVID-19 matters. So I guess you're involved pretty much in conflict resolution, but you could also advise employers as to how not get to that stage. Well, to be honest, um, unfortunately, uh, and I suppose um, if people had hindsight, I suppose I wouldn't have a job, uh, Mick, because um, uh, unfortunately, because of lack of hindsight, um, employ- uh, lawyers are needed. But I would say this, though, is that um, if, if employers take advice uh, uh, and proper professional advice, they can avoid an awful lot of uh, strife, litigation and uh, compensation claims against them. And um, the other thing that's going on at the moment uh, is that the WRC, for example, haven't been sitting for the last three months. They're now uh, recommencing um, hearings, but um, there will be a lot of litigation, I expect. There'll be an avalanche, I would imagine. It's been yeah, great to talk to you again, Pat. I'm out of time. Thanks very much for your fantastic well, expertise in the employment area. Pat Mullins of BDM Boylan. Thank you, Pat. Good morning. Thanks, Mick. Bye. Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 1850-104-106. Red FM. And you can text the program on 0868-104-106 or email neil at redfm.ie. Now, a big happy birthday to Anya Whelan. And Anya is five years old today and she's having four parties to celebrate. I think you should have five parties, Anya, because you're five. And uh, make sure you have five big parties, okay? And cost your dad all the money that you deserve as his uh, as his daughter, okay? So that's Seamus Whelan's daughter. Uh, Seamus is on the crew here. And a big happy birthday to Anya Whelan, five years old today, only having four parties, though, to celebrate. So we're advising you to have five anyway. And also a big happy birthday to the one and only Gemma Turner. And now then, we have uh, more serious topics to discuss. Uh, we don't often talk about farming on the Neil Prendival Show, but it is Farm Safety Week, and this letter came from my interview with Anne uh, on her husband's farming accident. I'm writing after listening to your interview with Anne on her husband's farming accident. 51 years ago, I lost my dad, aged 28, to a farming accident just before my second birthday. Only last week, I did the road trip with my mum and twin sister to visit his grave in a beautiful graveyard face- facing a church door just outside Clonroach in Wexford. We turn it into a day out a couple of times a year, but the reminiscence from my mum of the day of the accident is heartbreaking, and we get it every time we visit. My dad was hedge-cutting, and what we believe happened was that he went to tend to the machine, and it had not fully turned off. His death search shows he died of brain injury due to the accident. That day, my mum sensed something had happened and drove to the village. Last Thursday, she pointed out the house that she threw us into while she frantically went to the local shop to see if they'd seen my dad. The person whose land he was working on, the local clergyman whose wife told her he'd been called out to an accident, everyone else was obviously protecting her by not being the one to break the news of his instant death. Fortunately, after visiting his grave and going through the sad stuff, we then head for coffee and hear all the fun stories. Just imagine, Mick, this is 51 years later and it's still raw. My mum was 25 when he died. He remarried when we were 12. Sorry, she remarried when we were 12. My stepfather was also a farmer and fortunately was the best father figure we could ever wish for and made sure that my mum never forgot her first love and we never forgot our father. Farming accidents affect you forever. Uh, I'll hold the name just in case you didn't want to call it out, but thank you very much for that wonderful uh, letter and email. Farming accidents affect you forever. And this, of course, we're happy to highlight on Farm Safety Week. 
It is uh, coming up on three minutes. It is t- uh, three minutes to 11. And we have news at 11 on the way. You can continue to call us on one eight five zero one zero four one zero six. Text 0868104106 or email neil at redfm.ie. Get it off your chest. Text the Neil Brinderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Coming up on seven minutes past 11. This is Mick Mulcahy in for Neil this week. And next, my life's been turned upside down during COVID. Hi, Mick. Could you please give a shout out to my son, Dylan Wentz or Wentz, W-E-N-T-S-Z. That could be Wentz, could be Wentz, I don't know which one. Whose life has been turned upside down over the coronavirus. Dylan spent the last year studying in America on a soccer scholarship. He was attending a college in Iowa and had a great first year. He was made team captain and had gained a lot of attention from some of the big colleges in the soccer scene. He was due to spend the summer playing in Minnesota for a semi-pro club, but the league was cancelled over the virus. He stayed in America until May, when he decided that things were getting bad over there and that no one's really taking the virus seriously. So he flew home. He flew from Chicago after spending two months in his apartment isolating with just his roommates who flew on the flight with him and isolated for 14 days when they all got home. He is due to return stateside on the 27th of July. But with Trump now ordering all international students must attend classes in person, If the colleges go online, international students will be deported and the borders are still closed to anyone from Ireland. And even if they were open, he won't be returning as he feels it's not worth the risk. So he'll have to take a year out and hopefully this time next year start his second year of college. He's just had pure bad luck, but he's handled it like a trooper. America's loss is our gain. Uh, and if you read this out, we might send him a piece of, you might send him a piece of, a pizza voucher, uh, when he gets to catch up with his buddies. I'm not sure if we have any of that lovely pizza left, but we will. I'll put him on the list for one of our best of cork passes. Uh, so well done. Thanks for that. Uh, hi, Mick. I'd like to be kept anonymous if possible. Myself and my partner were traveling home on the bus yesterday evening. The bus driver did not ensure mandatory guidelines were adhered to as he left multiple passengers on whom were standing down the aisles, meaning social distancing was impossible for everybody to adhere to. Furthermore, passengers were not wearing masks, were not pulled on such and questioned on such despite them being mandatory now on public transport. With talk of a second wave of the virus, I was shocked to experience this and I felt extremely unsafe due to living with high-risk members of the community, as I do. Myself and my partner adhered to all guidelines with wearing masks and social distancing, but unfortunately, this was not the case for everybody. And uh, hi, Mick, would you please say a very quick birthday, a very quick happy birthday to Dennis Wynn, the manager of Toker Best Drive. He is a really good guy and so helpful to everyone uh, all through the coronavirus, and that's from all his friends and customers. Now, we uh, started the program this morning with, uh, I suppose, a story covered by The Echo, covered very well and very eloquently by uh, Paul Byrne on Virgin Media News and spoken on this program uh, so very eloquently and so heartfelt by the solicitor of the two ladies in question, who are Lisa O'Driscoll and uh, Emma Ward. And uh, the two young women were described by a sentencing judge as naive for continuing to offer speech and language therapy and occupational therapy uh, when they were not registered in Ireland with their UK qualifications. The media, and social media in particular, would have given you 
uh, a chance to believe that these could have been two chancellors who put up fake and forged um, documents. Such is not the case. Uh, and they were genuine. They were fully qualified. They were fully legal here when they started. Uh, and then the legislation changed and they had to and should have perhaps put more work into retrospectively registering themselves and complying with Koru. But that didn't happen. And that now is the stuff of history. Uh, but uh, we are going to speak to, uh, hopefully going to speak to uh, one of their friends, uh, who is on line two. Uh, no, okay, we've lost that, okay. Uh, okay, we'll come back to that, I suppose. Uh, right then, to some more of our texts and comments from yesterday. Uh, on the Green List, I was just reading about the Green List countries. What a load of rubbish and it's contradicting. This country is a laughing stock. We are given a list of countries that we can travel to, but the government is saying don't travel. Spain isn't on the list. I myself have a family holiday booked for the end of the month and Ryanair has told me they're not responsible for the government restrictions and that the flight is still going ahead. Has Michael O'Leary more of a say than Micheál Martin the Taoiseach? It seems to me Micheál Martin has his head stuck in the sand. Micheál is only thinking of revenue and not the normal Joe Soap family who have holidays booked. The, those people have worked and saved hard to pay for their holidays. The thing that annoys me more is that if you want to change the flight to next year, it'll cost you around the likes of another €400. Euro. Are there any other listeners in the same position? I think from now on, people should boycott Ryanair. I had friends who were going en masse, en famille, as they say, the whole family going to Florida for what was proposed uh, this year, earlier on this year. It, uh, of course, hit right in the middle of the pandemic and it cost them 200 euros uh, per head to take exactly the same next year. 200 euros extra uh, per head. Now, okay, hi Mick, I hope you get to read this out on air regarding the two ladies uh, and, and the therapist's case yesterday in court. Uh, Emma Power and Lisa O'Driscoll's expertise in speech and language therapy and occupational therapy is second to none. I cannot emphasize enough the impact their loss, where their loss is and will have on my son. There was no doubt in my mind after our initial consultation that these were the professionals who would not only help him but guide our family with the tools also. Uh, they treated my son like their own, and I will be forever grateful. Uh, his improvement is down to them, and I dread the regression once the schools, uh, once his school reopens. Amazing ladies, says Emma Bird. Well, I've uh, offered to, uh, and I've just said to the producers here, happy to have them in studio on a socially distanced uh, and sanitized uh, surface here. We can keep them distant if they want to come in. Uh, and I think somebody, I'm not going to say that this program should do it, but somebody should try to put some sort of a fundraiser together for their legal costs. Uh, if, as we're hearing this morning, uh, this is just the subject of naivety and, and their inability to get the correct documentation from the universities of Newcastle and Northumbria, we've had nothing but full-throated support for them as people, for them as professionals, uh, and a lot of criticism for the way the system seems to have gone you know, big brother on them and uh, and made an example of them. So if that is the case and if everything that we're hearing is genuine, I'd only be too happy to interview them here and maybe to publicize uh, a fundraiser if somebody was to do that for them. We're not going to do it here on the Neil Prendival Show, but happy to use uh, the power of this platform uh, to help those two girls or two, the two ladies uh, to write the, the, uh, the debts, I suppose, and, and to wipe them if possible. Uh, for the legal procedure they've had to go through. And there's an outpouring of sympathy for them uh, coming into the program today. Uh, now then, let's go to uh, line one and to Joe Seward. Hiya, Joe. Hello. Very good. You're on the Young Offenders topic. Yeah, I suppose uh, everyone has views on um, on television and on different programs. Just my, my take on it was, 
I'd heard so much about it. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the the reviews and reports were very good from what I was reading, from family living in the UK, seemed to love it, and friends loved it. And then when I got to see it myself, I just thought it was a bit of a damn squib, uh, just a sense of disappointment. I just thought it was maybe slightly overrated. Uh, I, I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the Young Offenders movie. Uh, and would you agree that that was a good showcase for Cork, even if it is showcasing a couple of rascals? Possibly, yeah, but it's, uh, I kind of describe it as kind of car- caricature humour. Um, I'm not a great fan of that style of humour, that exaggerated humour, which maybe um, isn't very real. Uh, there may be some sense of realism at times, but uh, I think everything is kind of exaggerated. You, you get it in, in, in that type of comedy, um, and a comedy is something that is um, an, is its own to individual taste. I'd respect everybody who enjoys it, but it just hasn't kind of um, I haven't kind of connected with the program. And um, I'm not saying it portrays Cork in a bad light. Some people were, were saying that yesterday, um, but just for me, I, I, I don't find it very real. Um, I, I just find it slightly exaggerated. And I, I know the actors are from Cork and. But are, are they are, are they local to that specific part of Cork? I don't think so. And do, do they portray portray it in a, in a real sense? I'm not too sure. That's just again my own personal opinion. But uh, you know, there's many people out there have, have huge sign for it, and and it's obviously gone down very well in the UK as well. And but do you have to be you know, a north sider to portray a south sider in Cork, or vice versa? Do you have to be from the the north side to be a north sider yeah. in in acting, or a south sider to be a a south sider? Is it being from Cork enough? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But uh, I, I think it would help to you have that sense that you know, growing up in an area and living there and understanding the the slang, the local rhetoric, understanding you know just the way people behavioural traits. I, I think it has to help. Um, uh, whereas somebody who comes in is, is slightly an outsider, and um, I. I, I, I it's it's a hard one to to, to nail, but um, for, for me, I would have preferred to see maybe people from the area portraying the characters and, and maybe having more input in it as well. Yeah, well, they are two very very accomplished actors uh, in 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 their own right. Uh, I know one uh, in Dublin doing a very very long run in a thespian role on stage live, and the other being in London getting all sorts of of uh, acting awards. So they are accomplished actors. They are from Cork, and in that sense, we should be proud of them. Uh, but I do take your point, and we had a we had a comment yesterday that uh, these are essentially middle class actors playing uh, lower class people or whatever, if that's uh, if that's the correct terminology in this politically correct uh, time that we live in. Uh, but there you go; it's going to be always. I suppose there's no such thing as bad pub- uh, bad publicity. I know the Foot family uh, casually, uh, and they're all lovely, lovely people. The entire family works on 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 that program, uh, and um, I think they've done a lot of good for Cork. There are those, of course, who are going to take exception uh, to certain elements of how the, of how Cork and the Cork psyche is portrayed. Uh, but that's what you're going to get, and I don't think uh, from the uh, from Peter Foot sense or from the crew sense, there's any such thing as bad publicity. Yeah, when, when you look at when you look at a series, whether it's comedy or drama, that portray, I thought one of the best examples of portraying an area was um, the RT series Pure Mule, uh, which was set in the Midlands in, in County Offaly, and I thought it gave a very accurate, apt um, sense of feeling of of the area at the time, and it really hit the nail on the head. Whereas when it comes to something that has comedy, comedy invariably 
is something that divides opinion. Um, because it's subjective. Is. I mean, if it wasn't a comedy, and I'm asking, is it getting a bad rap because it's a comedy? I mean, if it was, how, how do you think Love Hate um, portrays Dublin? Uh, how do you think Red Rock portrays Dublin? Not in a very good light either. Not in a very good light, but I think they were absolute. Again, I thought it's, it's the comedy fact. You hit the nail on the head there. Red Rock and, and Love Hate were two of the best productions I've seen, and, and they'd put Pure, Pure Mule up there with them. And even during the lockdown, I watched um, the, the, the box set of um, Pure Mule and, mm-hmm. and Love Hate again, and uh, just the, the, the level of quality of, of acting in those programs and, mm-hmm. and the storylines were incredible. But again, it's just com- comedy tends to invariably divide opinion, um, whether it's a stand-up comedian or whether it's comedy, you know, for, we go back to some of the, I find Brendan O'Carroll, um, you know, uh, Mother, Mother Brown's Boys or whatever it's Mrs. called. Mrs. Brown's Boys. It yeah, it wouldn't appeal to me, but I know people then who love it and I know Irish people who live in England, you know, have great time for it and... Um, but it's, it's that kind of exaggerated, as, as I call it, caricature comedy, which just doesn't appeal to me. But, you know, there are people out there who love it. And, and as I say, comedy is a very, very, it's a very individual. It's a subjective matter. And I, I pose the rhetorical question, how many hundreds of comedies had to go through the BBC and the ITV uh, before two, who were never really well supported, by the way, either at their start, uh, became the shining light of all things British comedy? And that is Only Fools and Horses and Faulty Towers. Yeah, and as we've seen in, as we've seen in the politically correct world we live in nowadays, uh, a lot of the, the comedy back in the day on the BBC wouldn't, wouldn't be, um, just couldn't air nowadays. Um, you know, you look back, going way back to a guy like Dick Emery and Benny Hill, they were so politically incorrect that there wouldn't be a hope that, um. But they were hilarious at the time because, because we weren't politically correct, if you, if you like. Ben, Benny Hill chasing chasing scantily clad women around and patting them on the bottoms and all this kind of thing was absolutely accepted at the time. Yeah, the likes of Kenny Everett, another guy, and um, they they would have um, the politically correct brigade would have been out in force on mass uh, at the likes of Benny Hill, Kenny Everett, and Dick Emery. But as you say, it was back in maybe a more innocent era um, when politically correct was was something that was never really a, a topic. Um, mm. We just live in different times and things have moved on. And uh, to that effect, it was there are people who, some people have taken offence to maybe young offenders that doesn't portray a car. It's a comedy, story. it's a fiction, it's a farce. It's, yeah. you know, it's meant to but entertain. It, it, it is, it's escapism. Um, and I certainly wouldn't judge it on that. Um, I just felt, it. I just didn't think, I wasn't as enamoured as some people were with it, but um, it was light-hearted escapism. That's, All right, that's Joe. I would describe it best, but... Um, it, it didn't get a 10 out of 10 for me, maybe a 7 out of 10. All right. Thanks, Joe. Always nice to talk to you. Th- uh, thank you very much. Killian's a 9-2. Hi, Killian. Hi, Nick. How's it going? Did you like the show, Young Offenders? No, no, I actually hate it, and I hate Father Ted, but um, I would disagree with John there um, in relation to uh, the show doing Cockroach Fables. Um, it's showing our cultural, cultural identification, and by that, uh, it means like walking through Dublin, or even in Liverpool, you know, people can pick out the Cork accent and know straight away that uh, we're from Cork, you know. And mm-hmm. it's, it's the scenery, for example, Patrick's Hill, Cork Harbour, East and West Cork. Um, they did a famous uh, bus uh, tour to uh, East Cork with uh, the Franco Martins blaring in the background. Um, that was good publicity for, for everyone. Yeah, the shaky bridge, the, the, the movie yeah. going, going through all of the beautiful beach and water exactly. hotspots on the way down to, uh, to West Cork and to Sheep's Head. 
Absolutely, and the businesses in the city and the community spirit as well. Um, we had a family a disaster there last year, and the people from the north side, uh, Guanabara, Nakhini, Churchfield, and uh, Low Gardens, they all came down to give us a hand. Um, and he also said that, you know, the salt of the earth up there, and he also said that it, it's turning people off coming. Now, people enjoy Gambinism, Mick, you know, the Keystone Cops, Laurel and Hardy, you touched on it there earlier, Father Ted, and, and Mrs. Brown's boys, I don't like any of them shows. But there's a market for goonism, you know, it's light-hearted, entertained, and escapism for a few minutes. I mean, there's a market for vegan burgers, you know, electronic cars, and milkmen are coming back. There's a market there for them, and that's all they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a little bit of begrudgery, you, you know? Like, our women folk are dying, you know? They, 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 the cervical cancers and all this are sick. People can't get cancer treatment. Our elderly are being, you know, they're being massacred in nursing homes. You know, Lee people enjoy the show for the stupidity that it is for half an hour, you know? And I take a look at the real world. It's escapism for 30 minutes. And if you like the show, so what? But it does show Cork in a good light, um, and albeit showing a bit of Gambinism. And, you know, it does, the, the, the TV shows have a history of Gambinism, as I said, you know, going back to the Keystone Always Cops. did, yeah. People Keystone enjoy Keystone Cops, uh, even down to Charlie yeah. Chaplin and all that kind of thing. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe The Young Offenders is ahead of its time and uh, will be seen to be so in future, you know? Maybe, and I hope so, but people would just have to get, you know... Stop snowflaking and see the real work for what it is. And All right. The dirty magazines and get a life, you know? <laughs> Thanks, Gillian. Uh, we'll take one more call on the subject. Malcolm's on line one. Hi, Malcolm. Hello, Mick. How are you? Good. What do you think of it? I just think people need to chill out of it. It's for fun. It's a fun show. All right. Some people get it. Some people don't. Look, everyone has their opinion. And that's why you have a show called The Opinion Line. Mm-hmm. But well, we don't. The the day, we don't. We have the Neil Pendleville show, but let's be silent. <laughs> well... At the end of the day, it's fun. It's a bit of laugh. It's fun. Fa- Father Ted, Father Ted was meant to be fun. I know a lot of people who don't get Father Ted. And I know a lot of people who call each other Ted because they love it so much. They know every single word. Uh, the Simpsons is subjective. Probably the best American comedy ever made uh, from a land that's known for canned laughter and crappy jokes. But The Simpsons are so far ahead of its time. Uh, and, and, you know, Father Ted can be seen to be a masterpiece by many and rubbish by others. Well, that's one of the shows that I probably possibly wouldn't have liked either. But I wouldn't go on there on the radio saying that it's making a mockery of the north side of the city. I'm from the north side. I think it's a bit of fun and people just need to chill out. Mm-hmm. Like this guy, John, yesterday coming on, he seems to have an opinion about everything anyway. But like, all of this is fun. These lads, these two cock lads are making a name for themselves. We've got a text in, in, in here, a text in here to say, uh, we were invited to a movie night with friends from the States and Italy last weekend. We watched the movie, The Young Offenders, and afterwards the opinions were that Ireland is very beautiful and the movie was good and there was no killing in it. That's what people said. Uh, exactly. People need to chillax. I mean, they're on about love here. I mean, the violence and that, or this thing that was out recently, the gangs in London. I mean, all right, it goes on. But at the end of the day, some people like it, some people don't. And, and all I say to the people out there that are knocking it, get a life. That's the way all comedy is going to be. Thanks a million, Malcolm. Comedy. No problem, mate. The, the calls keep coming. I'll squeeze one more in. Hi, Paul. How's it going? Good, and yourself? The Young Offenders is a very entertaining comedy, you think? Yeah, it's very entertaining, but it, 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 it is what it is. It's a comedy. It's not supposed to be a documentary. Mm-hmm. Anyone that takes it too seriously has their own problem, to be yeah. quite honest. And do you think it paints Cork in a good light for tourists? I think it paints Cork in a fantastic light, to be honest. 
Okay, so it's it's a comedic farce happening in in areas you can know and relate to if you're a tourist. Oh, there's yeah, exactly. uh, there's O'Connell's in the market. Oh, there's the Shaky yeah. Bridge. Oh, there's the Keys where they have the bikes, and there's everything else. It's spotlighting it's, it's the whole city, like yeah. Okay. And not only that, the most the movie spotlighted half of West Cork, which is fantastic. Okay. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. We've loads of calls on the topic, actually. Uh, it's really yeah. polarized as well. You know, it's 50-50. Some people love it. Some people hate it. And maybe yeah, that's how it's so powerful. But you know, the thing about it is, it's TV. If you don't like it, don't watch it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks a million. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right, man. Good luck. Is it, uh, is it Colm on line one? Yeah. Hello. Hello. Hi, you're in Spain. I think I might have read out your text, but now it's great to talk to you as well. You were invited to a movie night with friends from the States. Well, yeah, there was there was a yeah a, a social distancing outdoor movie night. Yes, indeed, Mick. Yeah. Okay, uh, and this was in Spain, and you watched the movie The Young Offenders. Yeah. So, well, there was a there was a um, a list of movies uh, sent out by the guy, and I picked The Young Offenders. I hadn't seen the movie, um, so there was actually quite an international bunch: Italian, American, Scottish, Spanish, yeah, um, and English. So we had to put titles on. Uh, that was sort of a necessary thing for everybody. But um, yeah, they all got it in the end. Okay. I had, and to, I had to explain Bure to them. Bure. Which was interesting. And yeah, Fien. Uh Okay, so uh, yeah, what, what was the, the general opinion afterwards? Uh, well, look, listen, I, I, I really enjoyed the movie. Um, um, uh, whenever there was uh, scenes of them driving down on the bikes down to West Cork and stuff like that, like, um, you know, everybody was like, there was oohs and going out, well, how beautiful Ireland is. Um, you know, and uh, people wanted to go there, actually, to go down and see Ireland. So uh, I thought it was, it, it, it uh, painted a good picture of the city and, and uh, well, Cork people, international people would know Ireland probably better than Cork, but yeah, it painted uh, the countryside anyway, a beautiful country. So Fair play. I, okay. I thought it was all good. You're, you're in Spain, a veritable hotspot for COVID-19. What's going on over there? Uh, well, yeah, I'm a, I, I'm a little bit upset about the whole thing, uh, what's going on with this green list thing, to be, to be honest with you, Mick. What, uh, what part of Spain are you in, Colm? Well, I'm outside. Uh, I'm south of Barcelona. Um, I'm outside. Uh, um, I'm outside the city of Barcelona. I'm, I'm near a place called Sitges, which uh, probably a lot of your listeners would know. Um, so yeah, so I'm. Um, well, I, I'm on. Well, was on lockdown and trying to get back to normal life, but I'm. I'm still not back to work yet, which is uh, obviously a worry, you know. Yeah, and are you decrying the lack of tourism or the lack of work, or or do you want people to stay away at the moment? Uh, no, no. Look, I, I think that there's the, the, the problem. I think with the, the laws in Ireland is that um, you know everybody's been treated with the same brush, and I don't think that there's any problem with a family going to Spain or going to Italy or something and renting a, a house or uh, you know a villa or something like that and staying by themselves. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Um, you know, um, with regarding Spain here, we have we have mandatory face masks when we're out in the, on the streets. They're not mandatory in Ireland. Um, you know, I have a friend actually with this movie night. Um, he had a, he's a medical condition and he's immunosuppressed, so he can't be around people, a lot of people and stuff like that. So, um, sort of learning to keep your, your social groups to a minimum so you're not interacting with the wrong people. Uh, and I think that's the main problem is that when people go, uh, Irish people, especially young people, go to Spain and different countries like that, they, um, they, uh, let's say they experience the, the cheap alcohol and stuff like that. And, and then they feel invincible. People that need to be tried. 
Yeah, yeah. well, no, that's not the type of people that uh, people in Spain want travelling either. Um, you know, if you're coming over here, you're being sensible. There's absolutely no reason why you can't come over here and have a safe um, holiday. And it's the same for me to go back to Ireland. I have, you, you know, um, I don't look at Ireland and go like I think everybody has got COVID in Ireland, but the way it's portrayed on uh, the way I see it is that, you know, COVID hotspot, like that everybody in Spain has got COVID and that's, yeah. you know, so completely further from the truth. Um, you know, um, I, I, I think the, the mistake the government made made yes, yesterday, Colm, is, is is that they put out this is a green list of countries. They didn't say this is the beginning of an organic document that will include many other countries as we go. That would have softened it a little bit. But said so this is a, a list of countries with a few lemons on it, which just begged attention. Uh, so you know, it's going to be an organic document. I asked Simon Coveney yesterday, you know, to take particular heed of, for instance, the Channel Islands. As part of the UK, very low incidence of, of COVID there. You can get direct flights. Uh, and of course, the Canary Islands are, because they're politically a part of Spain, but geographically 500 miles removed, also now have very low incidence of uh, COVID-19. So that should be addressed as a separate issue to Spain. But I take your point. Uh, the, the incidence in, in Spain is now, I, I think, under control, but it's still on the red list, or it's not on the green list at least. Well, well, it's it's growing, Mick. Yeah, there there are increased cases in, in uh, spots in, in, in certain areas. Yeah. No, well, in, in 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 a lot of areas, we know. Like I know uh, from the local paper here that there were sixteen new cases in um, in the area where I live last week, and in Fitches, uh, which were your listeners would know, there was ten new cases in the last week. But again, you know, uh, people are going around; they're taking precautions and things like that. And and um, you know, I don't think we want to go back to a lockdown. And, and um, people just need to be sensible. And uh, if they do that, then uh, the spread will go. The, the problem here is that, uh, you know, you go back to the old habits, you know, kissing two, two kids on the cheek, shaking hands, all that sort of all thing. All that stuff has to change. And young, and, and young people are very slow to, uh, on the uptake of masks and social distancing. Mm. Colm, like I'm, I'm bang on a time. Lovely to talk to you. Stay safe yeah. and hopefully we'll see you back in Cork in the not-too-distant future. Thanks a million. Text the Neil Prenderville Show now. 086-8104-106. Red FM. Hello, very good morning. We had a lady on looking for a wheelchair for her dad a few days ago at the start of the week. Uh, and we were inundated with offers of a loan or a permanent loan uh, of wheelchairs. And apparently everything's worked out swimmingly. She's gone to, I think it was Tato Park, wasn't it? And uh, they didn't have one for her. Uh, but the kindness and generosity of the people of Cork... Uh, I believe we've already, we're already in receipt of pictures of a very happy day and a very happy dad. So thanks to all who got involved in that one. Now, on line one, we have the artistic director of the Triscoll Theatre, and that is Tony Sheen. Is it Triscoll Arts Centre anymore, Tony? Is it Triscoll Theatre now? Morning, Mick. It's Morning. Triscoll Arts Centre. How are you? Very good. Triscoll Arts Centre, uh, I have to confess, I've only ever been there once, and I was absolutely blown away. Uh, by just the whole bohemian, the, the, you know, the underground thing with the, the old walls of Cork and the, the excavation. I went there to see um, the Camino, the, the, the rowing movie. Right. Oh, yes. fantastic. And, and it's, it's, it's a very much, I'd say, under-recognized resource in Cork. Would I be right? You would. And it's been under-recognized for 43 years now, so we're not worried about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it's interesting that you talk about the Camino, Mick, because um, you would have gone, I was there that night, actually, amazing movie, but it was also packed, do you remember? It was, like, and it, it showed it more than once, I think, didn't it? 
Yeah. So there was 250 people downstairs and another 50 people standing upstairs. And standing uh, room only at a cinema is unheard of. But such was the popularity of that film. When we open tomorrow night, right, those 300 people would be down to a maximum of 20. How nice crowds feel in retrospect. Indeed. It's it's certainly a bygone era now. But, you know, I was thinking that that beautiful church um, that held that film, I mean, it's a beautiful venue, right? It's an eight, for those who haven't been, it's an 18th century church, uh, beautifully restored a few years ago uh, by Cork City Council and with money from the government and from Europe. And, you know, it shows a full digital, it has a full digital cinema in there. And that's what we're opening tomorrow night. So for the next few weeks, at weekends on Fridays and Saturdays, we'll be showing uh, movies that you wouldn't really get in the mainstream cinemas. And we'll be showing all favourites as well. And one of my favourites that's coming up uh, on the 15th of August, about two weeks' time, is The Elephant Man. I don't know if you remember it, but it's a huge hit. David Lynch's film back in the day, made in black and white. Now, imagine watching that uh, on the big screen in a church. I'd, li- I'd like to go and see the lighthouse. That'd be that'd be one. That'd be. Well, that's opening this weekend, but we're sold out. Yeah, no, it's 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 kind of the and I hate to abuse the clear. The, it's not a cliche; it's a Ooh. verb, I suppose, an adjective. Uh, the bohemian element of that quarter of the city. There are so many restaurants, from fast food to real, you know, tapas and cafes, and many parts where you can supplement your evening and make it into a really, really good night out. And I think that's where the yeah. Triscoll fits in with its quirky approach to movies mm-hmm. and 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 its its whole ambiance, really. I remember, I mean, I have a, a personal association with Tristel going back to my early 20s. Uh, I started as an apprentice here, would you believe, But back in, back in the 1980s. But I remember when Tobin Street in particular was known as this just kind of awful alleyway. And now, you know, you've got people like Soho down there, you've Gusto down there, uh, you, you've got the Torino Cafe that opened up, um, and all the way up into South Main Street, you know, you've Liberty Grill across the road. And very soon and, again, know, hopefully you'll have the Oval and the Spalpeen and all those uh, well, other lovely pubs uh, around the area. My fingers crossed for them, Mick, because I think publicans, and particularly for those old bars that we all love, have had such a rough time. Uh, it, it would be wonderful if we could have them back, you know, because they make the place. Mm. And I mean, a lot of people that come to Trisco love going either before or after the show to those places. I should stop going down Barry yeah. Street for, for a frothy one. You could stop in the, in the Brown Derby, the Flying Enterprise, yeah. down to Fords uh, and all that. But having gone there and having had such a great night um, mm. and, have, and taking away a brochure, looking to see what we go to the next time. Uh, and I then went online because the brochure ran out, obviously. At, uh, I think that's really the secret. Get people to go online and look at the, look at the spread of events there. You can join the Triscoll, I think, for, is it 15 euros a year? For, for the for movies, you can you can and you, you get a discount then, yeah. You get a discount, but you also get three months. At the moment, you get three months free access to the online movie site Mubi M U B I, which shows the kind of movies that we show. It's it's like an, an, a bohemian, to use your word, a bohemian version of Netflix. And you get three month membership to that as well. So that's an offer. I I think it's still running. Um, once we open, I guess we'll probably revert back to the old way of doing things. But it was our way of trying to keep the arts and keep uh, artistic activity going during the, during the lockdown. Every week we did classical concerts or we did jazz concerts. And then we started showing movies online, uh, and pay on demand or even free, most of them. And we did that all the way through. But, you know, it's no replacement for the live experience. And sure. 
that's that's why I'm I'm so kind of looking forward to tomorrow, to tomorrow night. As I'm talking to you, I have to come away to take the phone call uh, from a run through that we're doing with staff of what of how we'll get people into the building and get them seated safely and so that they can just forget about COVID-19 and enjoy the experience. And, and just 18 say, people, I, Tony, is, 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 yeah. that going to be, is that going to be profitable? Well, or? look, that, that, that is not, no, it's not viable into the future for Triscoll to be to trade on 18 people. And the only reason it's 18 is because we are, well, we are sticking rigidly to the rules as you should about social distancing. And that's the reason why it's it's down to 18. Now, for the 18 that are there, I mean, it's probably safer than most places you can go. The church is huge. And as I said, in the Camino days, it could take 300 people down to 18. Yeah, it's a lot. You know, you'll, you'll be very well looked after when you get here to see the movies uh, or to come to music, which we will kind of bring back uh, later on in the month, and uh, or next month, rather, and, and all of that. And, you know, everything that, that people have come to expect now and actually have become sort of used to things like hand sanitizers and signage and all of that have been put in place. I mean, one thing from an industry point of view is that we need people to come to our shows if we're to stay alive and you can't do it on on, um, on 18 people. Sure, but that, that so will change in, into the future. Tony, can I finish by, uh, I suppose, strongly advocating that people put a visit to the Triscoll, to the Triscoll uh, on their to-do list or on their bucket list or something to do by the end of the year and that they book ahead. Uh, where can they find you online and can they drop in and get a brochure? Very easy. They can't drop in, right? Those days are gone, I'm afraid. We, we do everything online now, at least for the next month or two. So so the best way to get a hold of a ticket or to find out what's going on is to go on to the website, triskelartcentre.ie. Okay. That simple. It's a fantastic place. Continued success and longevity with everything you're trying to do. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks Thank a million, Tony. Cheers, okay. bye-bye. Tony Sheehan, the Artistic Director at the Trisco. The Neil Prendival Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday, 1850-104-106. And a very good morning to you. Marie phoned in, the lady who was looking for a wheelchair stroke stroller for her father, a lovely man, Joe, in Douglas, sort of a matter. I don't have Joe's second name, but Marie sent in a beautiful picture, and her dad is obviously so relaxed, having been pushed around. He's now pushing the stroller with what looks like his grandson uh, in there as well. So a very happy day out for the family. Thanks to Joe from Douglas. Now, a famous Irish famine letter with links to two Hollywood movie stars and a princess has been rediscovered. A letter written in late 1846 which had a profound effect on the outcome of the Great Famine is now returned to Skibbereen, the epicentre of that crisis, thanks to the family of the late Hollywood actress Rita Hayworth. And to tell us all about it, uh, we have Terry from Skibbereen Heritage Centre on Line 6. Hi, Terry. Hello, Mick. Thanks very much for tell- letting us tell the story. Pleasure. Now, this is a famous Irish famine letter, which was, if I'm not mistaken, uh, assumed to be a copy and wasn't. Exactly, yeah. Well, nobody could believe it was the real thing because the story is so fantastic. But just to tell you about the letter first, if I could, because that's hugely significant, but how it came back here is even more so. Um, the letter was written by um, a magistrate from Cork City, a Mr. Nicholas Cummins, who was a very, very caring man. He was a member of the Cork Relief Committee. And in late November 1846, he was reading Dr. Dan Donovan's writings about what was happening in Skibbereen. And he said he'd come down here and see for himself what was going on. And that was very dangerous because, you know, there was 
disease, rampant. You know, he was endangering his life coming down here. So he came down and he was brought around by Dr. Dan Donovan and what he saw shocked him. And he was a very clever man. He used the power of the media. He wrote several copies of the same letter, vividly describing what he saw here as an open letter to the Duke of Wellington. And he sent it to the Southern Reporter, the Cork Examiner, um, various newspapers in Cork. But he also sent it across the UK. And it was published in the Times of London on Christmas Eve, 1846. So the timing was very important as well. And this caused an, interna- an international furore, really did. Uh, I, I suppose this period of Irish history, it has been said, has been sanitised from recent um, education curriculum or curricula in, uh, in the UK. And, and, and a lot of people in the UK have scant knowledge about their uh, involvement here and the implications it had for the Irish population. Absolutely true. Um, one of our, well, up until this year, one of our most frequent visitors would be would be British visitors, and I've had so many of them come up over the years, going, "Oh my God, I had no idea. This explains everything. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I understood this." They only just get it as a little footnote in history as part of their study, so they had no idea of the huge role that Britain played in it. So they're, they're, they're always very interested. We had three million people on the run from starvation and, and essentially a British government that couldn't care less. And, and, and looking at some of, the, some of the words in the letters, I'll quote from it now, uh, at Skibbereen, the dispensary doctor found seven wretches lying unable to move under the same cloak. One had been dead for many hours, but the others were unable to move either themselves or the corpse, wrote Nicholas Cummins. Yeah, one of the, you know, starvation is is an awful way to die. It's um, an ignoble, disrespectful way to die because the most expensive organ in your body is your brain. It takes 25% of your calories to run your brain. So when you're starving, you know, it's, it's a physiological effect on your mind. You actually turn into very apathetic, you shuffle, your hue goes dark. So there's so many accounts of people just lying there and unable to do things. And that is one of them there now. Um, and a lot of accounts of people lying in the house with other people that were dead, you know, and being admonished for not taking out their dead ones and saying, you know, I, I didn't have the strength to take them out or I didn't. I was naked and I couldn't take them out. You know, we have no idea of the horrors of that time. I'm 20 years reading about this now, Mick, and every time I go back to it, it's still shocking. Shocking. Uh, whenever I go to one of my favourite artists is uh, Declan O'Rourke, and whenever we go to one of the gigs, of course, he's doing songs from the great album he released, Chronicles of the Great Irish Famine, and some of yeah. that stuff. Uh, songs like Poor Boy's Shoes and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, he has but, a huge feeling for it, actually, Declan has. Yeah, a handwritten copy of the letter made its way to America with Patrick Aloysius O'Hare and his mother when they emigrated from Cork just after the famine. Uh, so it's one of the originals. It was held as a precious possession of the family until it was sent to the mayor of Cork in 1963 by O'Hare's grandson, who was Vinton Hayworth, because he said it would please Grandpa to see it returning to Cork. Now, Vinton Hayworth was the uncle of the actress Rita Hayworth and also uh, an uncle by marriage of uh, that great dancer Ginger Rogers. He was also the actor who appeared in over 90 Hollywood films as well as many, many numerous uh, TV series, including... I dream of genie. So the letter was held in the Cork Public Museum. It's now on loan to you guys in Skibbereen Heritage Centre to celebrate your 20th anniversary of opening. And after some research, staff at Skibbereen Heritage Centre, yourselves, uh, with this copy of the letter on loan, were able to verify that it was an original of this famous famine letter written by Cummins or indeed by his clerk. That's it. Yeah, yeah, we wow. found a descendant. We searched all the archives 
um, to try and find any writings of Cummins, but there was nothing. And to cut a very long story short, there were, um, a descendant of his, also Nicholas Cummins, was um, a dean in Northern Ireland, and through his former parish, the parishioners there were fantastic. They went around and asked everybody, and they had a contact, and I finally got in touch with him in the UK, and he had a collection of some of his papers, and I emailed him over a copy of the letter, and he was able to verify that it was an original. Yes, and that can be seen by anybody visiting Skibbereen Heritage Centre now. It sure can. How long? How long will you have it? Uh, At least a year, but maybe another year. Hopefully, (laughs) Cork Public Museum might be nice to us after all of this. (laughs) And I'm hoping that Rita Hayworth's daughter, um, who is very interested in this, Princess Yasmin Nagakan, will visit. She said she would love to see the letter. She didn't know any of this story. So if she came next year, I'm sure they'd let me hold on to the letter. Exactly. And and what else can people expect if they go and visit you in Skibbereen Heritage Centre? Well, the full story of it really, make you know, it's, 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 you know, you read, oh, a million people died and a million and a half emigrated, but we tell stories of individual people. And I think really when it comes down to the individual, it resonates with people and you're in the place where it happened. So you, you go through and get the big picture and get examples, short stories of what happened to various people. And then you can go around Skibbereen and visit some of the sites, the mass graves out at Abbey Sturry or the soup kitchen just directly opposite us where up to 10,000 people were fed a day. Um, and there's many other sites around Skibbereen. So it's, it's, it's a place to sense the famine as well as learn about the famine. Yes. And the, the famine is, you know, the, it's, it's, it really is palpable in these places. You know, when you we, go there, you can... <gasps> we have so much here, Terry, uh, you know, for the staycationer. We have so much in Ireland, we have so much in Cork, we have so much in West Cork, that it really, we're just really peeling an onion here. There's so many more things that are coming to our notice, and we're happy to uh, subscribe to any sort of publicity that gets people to enjoy their staycation. And to that end, we're going to give away, uh, with your permission, some passes to the Skibbereen Heritage Centre on one eight five zero one zero four one zero six. Mind the letter, don't lose it. I won't. Thank you very, very much for, th- for thanks a million. It. Regards thanks to all of Skibbereen. Thanks a million. Bye bye. Thank thanks. Bye bye. One quick call before we, we go, and that is to Billy on line five. Hi, Billy. Morning, Mike. How are you? Uh, not too bad. You received a call uh, from a number an hour ago claiming to be from permanent TSB. Yeah, I got a call from a Dublin number stating that they were from the permanent TSB and they wanted to update my details. No, they had my name. Um, and then he asked me for my date of birth that I gave him, but I didn't give him the right one. Uh-huh. And then he asked me would I be able to proceed and give him the rest of the details, would I be okay with that? And I said, no, to be honest, if I have any updating to do, I'll contact the bank myself. Okay, this and was a Dublin dad, number, was it? A Dublin number, yeah. And do you have it recorded? I do, yeah. Okay, do you want to give it out? One take down out is... It's probably on the phone I'm speaking to you on, is it? It's, it's, <laughs> no, no, it's on, it's on the, I've, I've recorded on the landline. Oh, one two one five. Two one five eight three. Two one five six three eight three. One three eight three. One three eight three. Okay. Two one five. I thought that was RTE. No. Oh. Oh. So. And I just told. Oh. One two one five one three eight three. Okay. So if you get a number, and have you, have you checked back or given that to the guards or anything or? I have, I have no idea. I just text you instead of it. That's all. Okay. I have a, a person that I know in the bank and I mentioned it to her and she told me that it was a scam. So, Fantastic. Thanks for making us aware of that, um, Billy. And uh, we got to leave no it there, but thank you very much. Watch out for that TSP scam emanating from Dublin. Thank you very, very much. Good morning, Mick. Would you please wish a very happy birthday to the best daughter 
sister and aunt Avril Keating. Avril celebrating her birthday today. She's a clinical nurse manager in Cope Foundation. And the reason we're putting the request in, she's worked very hard with all her colleagues on the front line over the last months. We hope she has, has a great day from her mum, Claire, and dad, Michael, in Blackrock. My thanks to Brenda Dennehy, senior producer, to Seamus Wheelahan, who's got a birthday girl today in the house, and, of course, to Mark Willington. That's the Neil Prendable Show for Thursday. Talk to you tomorrow after news at nine. Thanks for listening to this Red FM podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out redextra.ie for more great Red FM content.